talking about the COVID vaccine slash ivermectin situation that has broken out on uh, what some might call the alternative media, media online. And I have as a guest on today, my friend Alex Ditzel. Uh, you want to introduce yourself, Alex? Hi. Yeah, I'm Alex. I've been on the podcast multiple times before talking about a couple different things and I'm a PhD candidate in biochemistry and cellular biology. So I'm, I'm pretty interested in the biology of the topic, but also some of the uh, discussion things and like social issues and whatever regarding it, uh, as we'll talk about later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this does bring together a lot of different uh, subjects. It's like a very technical issue, but it's something that is exposing a lot of social dynamics online in particular. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Okay, so in... Coming up to this episode, uh, what we've been paying attention to is, in particular, uh, Brett Weinstein has been the head of a sort of vaccine hesitancy, not really a movement, but a position. And his specific position is that we should be hesitant about taking the vaccines because uh, he has some evidence that vaccines are dangerous, or at least more dangerous than they're said to be. And there is an alternative that we can use to vaccines, uh, either prophylactically or as treatment, called ivermectin, which is uh, both safer and more effective. So I think that's a good summary of what his position is, but obviously he has a lot of reasoning behind how he came to that position. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it is kind of two separate points. So one, like (laughs) you were saying, is that there are a lot of hidden costs to the vaccine or problems that the general public doesn't know about and stuff like that. And on the other hand, there is the idea that ivermectin is a very powerful both treatment drug and prophylactic and that it has been suppressed by the mainstream due to regulatory capture and uh, censorship that's basically powered by these big pharma companies that uh, want to suppress this generic drug that works wonders in terms of dealing with COVID. Uh, what, what is the name for it? Um, oh, ivermectin, the drug? Or? No, no, the term for he's claiming that something is true, but we don't know if it's true yet. It's allegedly, right? Yes, allegedly oh, effective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is a good point, actually. So I didn't really mention it, but you're right. The w- One of the big perspectives behind... Uh, taking that sort of position at all, and especially why Brett takes it, is because there's a lot of these institutionalized incentives to uh, both uh, not promote ivermectin or even try to squash any effort to promote ivermectin and to uh, enforce the prominence of the status quo vaccines that have been developed by, you know, the big pharma companies. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is definitely his point. I think that there are arguments about why the incentive structure isn't as simplistic as that. Uh, like, <laughs> for example, um, the fact that there are also there's also a lot of big money that would benefit a lot from 
having a cheap solution to COVID uh, rather than <laughs> having to rely on big pharma for their vaccines. So, you right, know, it's, yeah. it's not, I, I don't think it's that simple actually, but that is certainly um, the argument that he makes and other people uh, who have a similar position to him make. I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And we'll have uh, plenty of time here to get into the details of the arguments being made. But I think it yeah. might be worthwhile just to uh, give some context to like what has happened so far, right? So COVID, or, um, it's, it's been about a year and a half or so since COVID started. And it was about uh, like, what, three months ago that Brett started talking about ivermectin? Um, Probably. Look, look, I can check the date on the uh, podcast, but approximately, yeah. Yeah. So that since then, right. um, Brett in particular has been, uh, he started off, uh, so this is my recollection of the events, uh, and we can reference specific uh, timelines here, but he started off being hesitant about the vaccines because they were using new technology that had not been uh, like proven over a long period of time to be safe. So he pointed this out early on, and this was before he talked about ivermectin or anything like that. And at that point in time, he hadn't said anything about uh, deciding not to get vaccinated or suggesting that anyone else not get vaccinated. Um, But eventually, it did turn out that um, he had not been saying it, but he hadn't gotten vaccinated. And the reason was because he was unsure about the safety of the vaccines. And he became confident enough in that and also confident that there was a alternative uh, when he discovered ivermectin. And that's when he really started talking more about ivermectin being uh, something that we can use to stop the pandemic. And basically, you should use ivermectin instead of getting vaccinated. Yeah, I think that's mostly true. I think that there is, I mean, there's a couple of things. Like, if I recall correctly, he went on Bill Maher's show a Mm. while ago. And then at that point, he was saying... Not that he was skeptical of all the vaccines, but specifically the mRNA vaccines, because they were new. And he said, you know, if you have a choice, maybe go with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or something like that, because it's an older, more established technology. So Mm -hmm. in that case, he was worried about it because it was the mRNA vaccines, um, or ostensibly because of that, at least at that point. Um, That's a good point. didn't say anything about ivermectin. Uh, And in that case, he was not saying he wasn't against all the vaccines just against and he wasn't even against them he was just worried he he was stating his worry about some of them uh-huh right right yeah and uh so what did you you must have you watched that bill maher episode right yes so at the time what was your impression did you think like oh no he's hesitant of vaccines i mean my impression was oh i mean that's an interesting way of looking at it like in terms of, oh, you know, maybe these vaccines that seem to have higher efficacy but are a newer technology, maybe they're actually more risky. But since he wasn't saying like people should not get vaccinated or recommending that, I didn't really think it was a huge issue at the time. Um, maybe it was kind of, he was being more skeptical than you would need to be given the evidence that was available, but I didn't really have a big issue with it. Um, at least at that point. I think that for me personally, I... Well, I, I mean, I, I, I've listened to a lot of his episodes and listened to him on other shows and things like that. And I think that he can be pretty reasonable and make some very interesting points and have an interesting perspective on things. Um, the, though, I, I think my attention really came to him pushing this a lot when uh, I listened to his How to Save the World in 
uh, three easy steps or mm-hmm. yeah, how to save the world in three easy steps podcast that he did with uh, Dr. Robert Malone and Steve Kirsch. Right. Okay. And this was about a month ago. What was the time? Uh, this was June 11th when I'm looking at overcast. Okay. Right now. <laughs> so almost exactly a month. Nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, right. This is definitely an infinite episode. Um, one, one or point. Two months, you mean? Because it was June. June. Oh, wait. Is it June, May? What? What? No, no. The podcast was in June. Oh, you mean a month after. Wait, a month after what? Right now, like, it's, a month right now ago? it's August. What comes August. after June? July. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I'm like not even sure what's happening right now. <laughs> Did you just like forget like July was a month that existed? <laughs> yeah. In short. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so yeah, so, so like rough... two months ago, he did the How yes. to Save the World at Three Easy Steps podcast. Wow. <laughs> wow, it feels like it wasn't two months ago. Man, it's gone so fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was about a month or so after the Bill Maher thing. So it's it's been some time. Mm-hmm. And he has this episode, right? But just uh, one, one point before we get to that. Uh, Brett was also involved in another interesting situation uh, relating to that Bill Maher episode, which was the um, the lab leak hypothesis, right? Oh, true. Yeah, actually, that that's an interesting prelude to this. Because even though we're not directly discussing it, it certainly is um, related to both Brett and another person who is involved that we'll probably be talking about later, which is uh, Yuri Dagan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so Brett was a very strong early proponent of the lab leak hypothesis, which, you know, basically is a hypothesis that rather than emerging naturally zoonotically from um, some animal in China, uh, it, that the SARS CoV 2 virus emerged uh, from a leak from the lab in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, right. And he okay. was a strong proponent of that early on. Yes, yes. I remember listening to those early episodes, and he kind of went through his reasoning of, here's all the different possible places it could have come from, and like here's the a priori likelihood of each one, and then here's you know the, the evidence that we see and how that updates my beliefs, and then eventually he comes to basically 95% uh, probability that the virus escaped from a lab in the Wuhan Institute. Yeah, that seems very high to me personally, given the evidence and counter evidence, like uh, what, where the different strains emerged, and uh, certain things like that, and the structure of the uh, of certain parts of it, like if you're in cleavage site. But uh, regardless, that's certainly something that he promoted early, and he, mm-hmm. I think, he maintains at least a ninety percent likelihood as of now and you know and I, I think that to his credit he was someone who considered it a plausible explanation at a time when it was pretty much ridiculed as uh impossible and then other evidence came to light and stuff like that and a variety of other more mainstream scientists considered it somewhat plausible at least though i don't think most people put the likelihood as high as he does um, <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. know if there's been a poll on that but uh I, a- yeah yeah, so, right, that's an important point to note, is that at the time, he, when he went on Bill Maher to talk about the, the lab leak hypothesis, basically you were immediately labeled as a conspiracy theorist if you talked about this in public. Exactly, which is interesting, and I think it's um, I think it's pretty good that he was willing to talk about it, even if I think he is overconfident in it. 
I, I think that is something where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, being willing to talk about something that goes against the mainstream narrative can sometimes be useful if it is a plausible thing. Um, and, you know, like, again, there is evidence for and against it, but uh, it, it shouldn't be something that is just dismissed out of hand, I think, which it was at the time and since then is much less so. Yeah, so I think this is where this is a good first part where we start to uh, figure the difference between like what the truth is and what the social reality is, right? So mm-hmm. you just said that uh, it might be useful to have people that are overconfident. Basically, they believe something that's false or mm-hmm. probably false mm-hmm. because it helps the uh, conversation in public to develop closer to whatever you think the right thing is. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because that does seem useful just to have a variety of opinions, even if not all of them are correct, because it does contribute to the overall discussion. Um, but in some cases, I think that that is less useful, uh, and maybe we'll get into that later. Why I think it might be less useful in this case than it was in the previous case. <laughs> um, yeah, it, does, <laughs> it definitely seems likely that there are cases when it's useful and cases when it isn't. Um, yeah. Though perhaps there are positions that would take a principled stance that it's never useful or it's always useful or something. Yeah, I know. For example, so this reminds me of on one of the Rebel Wisdom uh, mm-hmm. podcasts. He was talking to uh, Tess Lowry, who is one of the big proponents of ivermectin, and ah. uh, he was saying, "Like, is there any case where maybe we should keep certain ideas like outside of?" public discourse entirely. For example, he used the example of people on Facebook who genuinely uh, just feed their children bleach to solve certain medical issues. It's like miracle uh, miracle mineral solution or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's just bleach. And then when they get like rashes, they're just like, oh no, it's just the the toxins coming out of their body. And he's like, should should Facebook stop those conversations from happening? Because they're just obviously harmful. Like there isn't much to gain from these people discussing how to feed bleach to their children. Um, and Tess Lowry took the principled stance that, no, there should never be any sort of censorship like that, uh, that it should be um, you know, allowed to discuss things like that. So she, she would probably be one of the people that is more on the uh, free speech absolutist side, maybe. But I mean, it's not even, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like that, or maybe uh, that it is not a bad thing for those discussions to be happening. I, I'm not sure exactly what her position on that would be, but it kind of reminds me of that as uh-huh. perhaps one of the more extreme sides in one direction. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's definitely a big topic and I'm sure we'll get uh, to talk about it here uh, alongside a lot of other issues, but it is certainly interesting, right? And in this case, it's, I, I think you were talking about Facebook in particular, whether Facebook yeah, should have a Facebook, role. I think. Yeah. yeah. So I don't even know, is it, is it illegal, uh, like against state laws or uh, federal laws, to teach people how to feed bleach to their children? Uh, I'm actually not sure. I don't, I don't know enough about the legal <laughs> stuff to say. I mean, it seems morally it is not a good thing <laughs> for people to do. Um, I mean, right. but I guess that's given that we know that it's just harmful. Since the people doing it believe that it's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is definitely a, a, a big or an important factor that's right. If you assume that this is the truth, then you can sort of make the perfect judgment about what should be allowed and what should be, what shouldn't be. But if you yeah. don't assume, then you sort of have to factor in, well, what's the probability that you're wrong? 
Exactly. And I think that this might also relate to, so this is kind of skipping ahead, so maybe we should talk about this later, but this might relate to Sam Harris's recent episode uh, where he was uh, very strongly judging Brett Weinstein um, mm-hmm. for his uh, his promotion of ivermectin and more particularly for his uh, perhaps dredging up fears about the vaccine or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a lot to say about that as well, but yeah. uh, we'll, we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the most recent thing. That, I, I think it is. Cause, or I, Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much the most recent thing. Because as of the recording, th- that second episode, which was Sam's Q&A episode, was like two or three days ago. It was very recent. <laughs> but you did say that Brett uh, tweeted something today. Yeah, I mean, I don't know <laughs> if it was something super... Like, the thing is, obviously, people tweet things every day, so... <laughs> Yes, and it's always important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I see. So I, I looked up his, uh, his tweet, but I, I don't think it's that important, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> okay, so what's what's next then? So we've covered Bill Maher, and then we, we came up to a couple of people talking about uh, the lab leak, and mm-hmm. then there's, this tra- or there's a transition where uh, it became a more mainstream position, or at least... There were a lot more uh, people with institutional credentials that were willing to entertain the lab yeah, leak I'd hypothesis. Yeah, I'd say that even if most people don't necessarily believe it was a lab leak, it became mainstream to say the opinion, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, even if it isn't mainstream to necessarily believe it. I actually don't know what the polls are now. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people do believe it. But um, <laughs> it's certainly mainstream. Like if someone says, oh, perhaps there was a lab leak or whatever, they aren't laughed out of the room or called a bigot or anything like that at this point, as far as I can tell. Uh-huh. And I, in fact, even in Sam Harris's podcast, the person who um, was arguing very strongly against uh, Brett, uh, which was Eric Topol, he mm-hmm. said that it seemed like a plausible hypothesis now. So, I see. And he's very mainstream. Right. So way. it hasn't been definitively uh, shown or, and there isn't any consensus on it, but it's a hypothesis that is taken seriously. And yeah. It's a hypothesis taken seriously. There are certainly a lot of people who disagree with it strongly and there's evidence against it. Uh, but there's also evidence for it and people who take it seriously in terms of uh, believing it very strongly, like Brett, for example, but he's also not mainstream. So yeah. 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 I'm thinking more of like people that are tenured professors or like do mm. research for a living in a, in an institution. In, in academia. In, in academia. Sure. Or I, I guess, I don't know. Are there industry people that <laughs> believe uh, in? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's true also. <laughs> like people involved in that stuff. I, I, I don't know exactly. Again, I don't know the polls and stuff, but my just impression from the atmosphere hearing the conversations is that it became a lot more mainstream acceptable to discuss. It'd be so funny if one of the, like Rebel Wisdom or one of those podcasts had someone on from that like worked for Pfizer or something. And they're like, so how effective are the vaccines? And they're just like, vaccines are perfect. No problems. Everything's great. (laughs) Well, no no, no problems at all. (laughs) I I think that they would probably say, you know, the vaccines are perfect, but they're just perfect enough for six months. Then you need booster doses every six months for the rest of your life. <laughs> yes. No, uh, I, I mean, that no, that's is one how perfect they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're so perfect that you need to take more of them. But yeah. um... the, the only problem is that people aren't perfect. So like, they just can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> the ideal situation would be taking a hundred vaccines every day. <laughs> yeah. And, and they double the price every time you take one. But... <laughs> 
no. Yeah, they do I, mean, I, I don't think it would be that crazy. I think that they would probably <laughs> mainly just say the same things that the, the company says in press releases and everything, um, yeah. which isn't too crazy. But, uh, but, it, but yeah, it would be so, so funny to have them like fit the exact stereotype of what they're worried about. <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you think that there's any concerns about safety? There's never concerns about safety. With <laughs> there's never been concerns. <laughs> with Pfizer, safety is our number one priority. We've never had a safety. No, but anyway. Oh. Yeah. No, yeah, but, but I, I, mean, I took a hundred vaccines this morning and I'm fine. Yeah. Look at me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, instead of water, I just drink vaccines. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Yes. Oh. It's like, I think, wasn't there a guy from Monsanto that at some point said he was fine with drinking the weed killer, that it was so safe? And then someone's like, are you really going to drink the weed killer now that you said that? And then he backed off it. He's like, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> but it's like, I, I don't know why he said that in the first place. But I think he, there was someone from Monsanto who actually said that at some point, drinking glyphosate liquid, which, I mean, even if it's safe, that's just a terrible idea. But anyway... <laughs> Why would you? Why would you promise that? Yeah. <laughs> Do you dare me to drink this weed killer? Yeah. I dare me. It's like, of course, like someone in the media is going to dare you to drink like a glass of weed killer. Like that. That would make such great like TV. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. But but I, but I don't think they'd be that crazy though. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. they'd have their own biases and everything. Uh, of course, and they'd be representing the company. I'd expect them to probably have would probably be the most lukewarm answers possible that just exactly match the press releases. <laughs> um, if they're yeah. just representative of the company, they'll just say, this is what we're allowed to say and nothing else. Like they're not going to say their personal opinion and stuff, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is probably like some contract about, well, we've done these studies and these are like the official results and maybe yeah. we've done internal stuff, but you're not allowed to talk about that. Yeah. I, I think that anything that they would say is stuff we would already know. Um, so I doubt it would honestly even be that interesting. <laughs> we're growing human animal chimeras yeah, in our oh, labs yeah. right now. <laughs> you know, you know it's, like, it's like they're cloning people, like in China, you know. <laughs> no. yes. That's where it all starts. Yeah. Okay, okay. so let's, let's get off the topic of these crazy... <laughs> yeah, yes. Sorry about that. Tangent. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so where do we leave off? Uh, so I think we were at the point... So after the lab leak became more mainstream... Then I think would the next thing be when uh, Brett, or I guess Dark Horse, but in this case it was only Brett since Heather wasn't on this particular podcast of How to Save mm -hmm. the World in Three Easy Steps? Yes. Okay. So this is the landmark podcast. It's kind of where Brett really makes a name for himself on this. Yeah. This is when he really stakes his claim on ivermectin being good, and he doesn't explicitly say it. But you, if you let's say you listen to this podcast without having a strong opinion on either ivermectin or the vaccines, and you basically trust what's said in the podcast, you would basically come away with the impression that, oh, I need to take ivermectin right away, and I'll never get vaccinated because it'll sterilize me, or it'll sterilize me if I'm a woman. It will uh, like be super dangerous. Thousands and thousands of people have died from it, um, stuff like that. It's, uh, it goes quite off the rails at certain points. <laughs> in terms of things that are said that are just false. Uh -huh. uh, it's it specifically from... So of the three people, there's uh, Brett Weinstein, there's uh, Dr. Malone, and there's Steve Kirsch. Um, and Steve Kirsch, he really, really goes off the rails quite a bit and just says things that are 
false and very alarmist. Like he says, oh, the highest concentration of the vaccine, this, these toxic spike proteins, is in your ovaries. And when you look at his data, like the data that he's citing, it simply isn't true that that's where the highest levels are, and it's much lower than a variety of other places that were tested and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's it, it's quite amazing in how bad it is and how many little things they say that are very alarmist while trying to have the impression of being a reasonable discussion of it. And to be fair, I don't think Brett or Dr. Malone are nearly as bad as Steve Kirsch in this episode. Uh, <laughs> and funnily enough, actually, of the times that someone is pushing back, it's often Dr. Malone that's pushing back on Steve Kirsch saying crazy things. Like, I, I don't think Brett really pushes back on many of the crazy claims at all. He just accepts them. Um, and Dr. Malone sometimes does push back, which is, you know, to his credit. Uh, though, also, he does agree with some things that don't necessarily seem to be uh, the most, the best way to say things or accurate. But, uh, but for the most part, he seems mostly reasonable and actually willing to disagree with things that would be against the vaccine, whereas Brett as far as I could tell, pretty much is just like, wow, I can't believe that. It's like, wow, that's amazing if it's true. Or, or like, wow, that's amazing. What a what a crazy find. That seems very dangerous uh, when Steve Kirsch is saying quite wild things. Uh, yeah. I don't okay. know. What was your impression when you listened to that episode? Um, okay, so there's definitely a lot of things here. So you've mentioned basically um, that... There are these three people, and Steve Kirsch is saying a lot of things that are immediately demonstrably false and not being pushed back very much by Brett and being pushed back somewhat by uh, Dr. Malone. Yes, and I think that's fair. When I was listening to the episode, yeah, I definitely got the sense that he was an outlier and I I didn't really know anything about him beforehand. I, I have since uh, looked a little bit into him and have a better idea of the kind of person he is. But yeah, to be fair, I don't really know much about him at all. I think I've only listened to him in this episode, and I might have looked at his Twitter once after it. So you probably know more more about him than I do. No, that that's exactly all I meant by oh, okay. <laughs> looking into him. Okay, sure. Um, uh, but right, so. There's a couple qualifications I would give that when I was listening to it, basically the things they said are just uh, a lot of common things that can be side effects of medications, like uh, having problems with sterilization. Like there are probably lots of medications that have a chance of sterilizing you. Uh, yeah, I mean, somewhat. I think that you know the mechanisms of stuff they were saying wasn't really common and but but suddenly there are medications that can sterilize you yes so i think that the thing that is alarmist about it is that they said all these things as if the quantity of different things that could happen was enough to like make it probable that it would happen uh, mm, yeah. so they give all these side effects and they even say at one point that um according to the uh, VARES database that there's, uh, or no, no, it wasn't the VARES database, right? They, they say in the trials that they've run, there were so many diverse side effects that this is like a really concerning oh, issue. yeah. <laughs> and it is interesting because they mentioned that, which I, I thought this was kind of noteworthy, that they mentioned that the side effects of the vaccine, the serious side effects, are so diverse that there barely seems to be any pattern at all. 
And then it makes you think, <laughs> perhaps that's just because they're all coincidental things that happened after the vaccine and aren't actually attributed to it. Um, but no, they, they don't actually ever mention that possibility. They conclude, or I don't remember who says it, but whoever says it concludes that it's because the spike proteins go everywhere in your body. Therefore, they create a huge diversity of different side effects, which is not what you expect when there are significant side effects from a certain medication. Uh, often you would see a pattern of specific outcomes that are associated with it, not just a huge variety of random things going wrong with someone afterwards. Right. By variety here, really what it means is just totally random things happen that are uncorrelated with like specific actions of the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of what it means. Yes. But it, potentially this could be an issue because then it's like, oh, well, if it's a large variety of things, then it's like, well, there's a lot of things happening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe not I all mean, to the same if person. If it were but... actually everything happening due to the vaccine, that that would be quite alarming. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here, but if it were, I guess it would be quite alarming. It would also be quite amazing in terms of the variety it causes. That would be quite interesting medically, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so there's a few uh, points of evidence that they bring up and really focus on. Mm -hmm. Uh and I think you'll have some responses to these, so it's good to talk about. So the first one was that the vaccine, when it's injected into you, it's injected in your arm usually. But mm -hmm. they found, uh, according to them, that the vaccine spreads throughout your body. And this is a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, and specifically, they couple this with the idea that the uh, spike protein, which is the protein that is expressed by the mRNA in the vaccine in order to in your immune system. They say that the spike protein is cytotoxic and causes issues. And that's why having the spike protein go everywhere causes big problems. Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, one is one thing is uh, it seems that perhaps some of the studies they were studying about the toxicity of the spike protein weren't as straightforward about the toxicity of free floating spike protein as what they were talking about, uh, as they made it seem. And also, and I mean, I think honestly, the bigger thing here is that this is a mechanistic prediction about why the vaccines could be dangerous, which, so this would be my main objection, which is, you know, let's say someone gives you a medication and, uh, or like they, they show a medication and they say, theoretically, this can cause this and this problem because it does this throughout the body, or it could do this throughout the body. And that's kind of the thing that they're saying. They say, oh, it goes throughout the body and it's toxic, therefore it's causing problems. Mm -hmm. But when they, there are actually clinical trials and stuff, those problems don't seem to manifest. Um, so it seems to me that the data from the clinical trials should be taken as the safety data and any predictions that they had uh, before those should be of much, much lower importance. Like, they should have been taken seriously up until the point when it doesn't seem like the safety issues are serious based on actual data in people. Um, and, in fact, this is the opposite argument of what Brett often makes with regards to ivermectin, <laughs> where, the argument, where the argument that some people make against ivermectin is that there is not a known mechanism of action, therefore we wouldn't expect it to work. And then Brett says, yes, but in the trials, it does work. Therefore, knowing the mechanism of action doesn't matter because in the fact that it does work is evidence enough. 
which, I mean, he's right about that. I think the interpretation of the data might vary between people, but he's right that, you know, if it does work in a trial or if it is shown safe in a trial, then these a priori expectations of safety or efficacy are should be much lower priority. They shouldn't really be the main concern, in my opinion, yeah, uh-huh. or it seems to me. Yeah, that that so this uh there's two things I wanted to say about this. Mm-hmm. Um I think it relates so th- this is a point that Dr. Malone I think primarily brings up and mm-hmm. I think it is relevant because it points to the background that he's coming from and the background that he was presented as having in the podcast. So mm-hmm. he is introduced to the podcast as the inventor of mRNA vaccines, right? I think that's yeah. I, I, I'm not sure what, what the exact is that verbatim what it was. Okay, then it probably was because I'm not sure because I've heard Brett say he's the inventor of RNA vaccine technology, but oh. I've also heard him be called the inventor of RNA vaccines in some cases. So I'm not sure what they said in that particular podcast. Uh, so, they may have just said both at different points, but yeah. yeah. That, so and, okay, there's a subtle difference there between yeah. vaccines and the vaccine technology, right? But yeah. Um, Right, so when he's talking about this uh, feature of the action of the vaccines, the, basically your response is, yeah, that's a that's a concern that we need to address, and we have addressed it. And it seems that actually it doesn't have as much of an issue as it what was uh, originally thought it could have. Yeah, yeah. Based on this prediction that they had, which I don't think was necessarily shared by of the people who are testing the vaccines i don't think they <laughs> shared the same concern but it turns out that when it is tested it doesn't seem to have massive amounts of uh very problematic side effects in clinical trials at least <laughs> uh-huh okay uh but there were definitely some people that thought that it could have been an issue yes there were like for example uh the people in this podcast oh yes but before. i mean before the trials were done Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, so the thing is, obviously, with clinical trials, people don't tend to have a strong expectation for something being safe or not, because you just don't know until you do the trials, I guess. Hmm. Okay. Or I mean, like, people can, like, they can be like, okay, we mostly expect it to be safe. But also, the idea is that you don't necessarily have a super strong opinion going into it. And I don't know if they had these specific concerns. I wouldn't be surprised if people did. I, I don't know enough about the behind the scenes of the opinions of people running the trials. To say, but. Okay, that, yeah, I guess I guess what I really meant, and it's not really relevant exactly what people believe, but it's that this was a recognized risk that needed to be assessed. Oh, sure, yeah. And I think my impression of what happened is that uh, Dr. Malone was familiar with sort of this background research to how the RNA vaccines work, and he noticed that this was a risk that needed to be assessed, and he didn't uh, follow up, or at least didn't uh, seem to recognize the follow up, which was that the risk was assessed. Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of my impression based on this episode. Um, I mean, so what he says in this episode, I think, is that he alerted the FDA to it, and that therefore they knew about the risk, but they continued anyway with trials and everything. Um, and it does seem like it didn't cause massive problems so yeah and honestly even if it is a risk it's probably still reasonable to try trials uh because you don't know but also you you know if if it's a big risk then you'll notice it early on with some of the trials but it it depends that that's an ethical issue but 
Uh, <laughs> certainly, it does seem like once trials were done, there weren't huge safety risks. Uh-huh. And we can see that even more so once there's mass rollout. Though, I guess the people in this podcast would disagree with that by pointing to the VARES database. But prior to the VARES database, just looking at clinical trial data, it doesn't seem like there were issues on the scale that would be noticeable on clinical trials, which they likely would be if they were as common as... So, I mean, for example, I think Steve Kirsch was saying that he knows multiple people like his housekeeper <laughs> or something, or guard... I, I forgot exactly oh, right. what it was, yes. who um, became paralyzed. I, I don't remember exactly, but he knows multiple people who had extremely serious purported side effects from the vaccine that disabled them for life uh, or as far as he knew at the time of the podcast effectively or that were life-changing level side effects uh, Mm -hmm. long term and those are things that would definitely be noticed in clinical trials typically Uh, (laughs) you would think you would think yeah yeah this is an interesting okay so so we've covered the the mechanism of the spike protein going throughout your body. Um, and then this other piece of evidence that I think was like the big piece of evidence was the VARES database. And they spend a decent amount of time talking about this. So it's presented as, um, look, there are all these reports from the public in- into this database that are mm-hmm. showing that there's clearly a lot of uh, side effects of the vaccines that are much more serious than anything that the official uh, uh news outlets press releases have recognized so something fishy yeah. something is afoot right yeah i think that's certainly how they present it uh uh-huh. yes. so then you, you what is our sense of this here how does that work so i think at that point they said oh look there is something like i'm not sure the exact number, like seven thousand deaths in this VAERS database these are adverse events and then uh i believe so I think there was a consensus among all three of them that this must be an underestimate of how many adverse events there really are. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Steve Kirsch says, like, there, this is always an underestimate because a lot of people don't report it. They're discouraged from reporting it. Uh, there, there's probably way more than this, maybe 10 times as many deaths. So mm-hmm. that would be like 70,000 deaths at that point from people getting the vaccine. Uh, he says he doesn't think it would be that high, but he thinks it's definitely higher than the thousands that are already reported in there. Um, as far as I can tell, there's no evidence that indicates it must be underreported. And in fact, there is evidence that it would be overreported because, I mean, there's a couple things. One is this is a mass inoculation event, meaning hundreds of millions of people got vaccinated all at once. So it captures essentially every medical event that happens to any of those people. Um, and also, if you look at the first couple months of the vaccine, uh, almost everyone who was getting it was either very old or in a situation where they were already vulnerable anyway for some reason or another due to pre-existing health conditions. And those also happen to be the people who are most likely to die just normally. Like if you have a 90-year-old who gets a vaccine and then they die, they might have just died because they're 90 years old too. And interestingly, uh, so this is something that Yuri Dagan points out uh, in his uh, interview with Rebel Wisdom. Mm -hmm. If you look at a graph of the number of vaccines administered compared to the number of deaths reported in VAERS, it doesn't seem to match up at all. Like when you see most of the deaths early on uh, in the vaccine administration, and then when it ramps up to even higher numbers of people being vaccinated, 
the numbers just drop of, of deaths and everything, which may indicate that perhaps it was, which I mean is evidence towards the idea that these were just natural deaths because the people were already old and vulnerable anyway. And as they moved towards more healthy people getting vaccinated, the amount of people who died after getting a vaccine dropped too, which would indicate that the vaccine is less likely to be causing the deaths. And especially less likely in, uh, or, or at least not very likely in younger people or less vulnerable people, which are also the people that, you know, Brett Weinstein and others seem to be advising not to get the vaccine. Um, so right. that's interesting. But it, it does seem like perhaps there's evidence that they aren't causing it. And in fact, the typical use of the VAERS database is to provide information that can then be investigated to see whether they can be attributed to the vaccine. Like, for example, if someone, so this is, this is actually an example from my personal life, because I know my roommate, his cousins were highly skeptical of the vaccine, but ended up getting it. So he got an injection mm. on his arm. And then over the next week, he developed a sore that then filled with pus and stuff like that on his other arm. So not the injection arm, just his other arm. He got a sore with pus and stuff like that. It turns out that when he went to the hospital, it was an infection, and they gave him antibiotics um, because he had an infection on his arm. And he attributed that to the vaccine, um, <laughs> which is essentially, I mean, so perhaps I didn't hear the <laughs> complete story, but it seems extremely <laughs> unlikely to me that that event was actually caused by the vaccine and the more likely outcome seems to be that it was just an event that happened to occur after the vaccine, but because the person was very skeptical of the vaccine and worried about it going in, he then attributed the event immediately afterwards to the vaccine, and I believe he actually reported it to VARES, too. Mm -hmm. So, so. VARES, uh, as you're saying, it doesn't require you to say that I think this is attributed to the vaccine, right? Well, so it doesn't require it. And that's not even the purpose. Like the purpose of it is that you can submit an event that occurred and then it'll be evaluated after whether it seems likely to be caused by the vaccine. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So it, that's very useful here because it makes it immediately clear that there's something missing in their analysis or maybe a few things missing in their analysis of VAERS. Mm -hmm. They're using it not only as... Uh, basically, a hundred percent of the people in VARES are uh, directly attributed to the vaccine, whatever their problems were. But yeah. that it's an underestimate of perhaps like what was it tenfold? Yeah, I, th I think that was at least the estimate that C. Kirsch put forward. As a he said, you know, it could be as bad as a tenfold uh, lower, which I would be. I, I mean, that seems quite unlikely to me, uh, given how 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 many people. Uh, would report uh, just whatever events happen afterwards, even physicians, because, you know, a physician, if someone dies of a heart attack a week after getting the COVID vaccine, just because they're 95 and have a weak heart and heart mm -hmm. disease or something, you know, that should still be reported into VAERS. Like, right. it should be. That's not a, like, misuse of the system. It should be right. because they could still notice a pattern that, you know, maybe it does cause heart attacks. Like, it, it could be caused by the heart disease and because they're old, but it could be because of the vaccine, and it should be reported but it shouldn't necessarily be assumed to be caused by the vaccine just because it happens afterward, especially when, you know, half of the country has been vaccinated. And so therefore, essentially, every adverse event that happens to everyone is an event that happens after the vaccination. Yeah, 
yeah, I think this is a really good thing too for us to talk about because when I was listening to it for sure, I was confused by this part. I was thinking like, oh, so there's this database and in the database is all of the side effects that people have experienced from the vaccine. That's how it's presented. Mm-hmm. And that is then, how it's presented, yes. Right. <laughs> And they make this inference from that that, like, okay, well, you know, not everyone that has a side effect logs it into VARES, so there must be more people than that. So we have to make some sort of lower bound of this data. Um, but, yeah, like you were just saying now, that's totally not a, a direct inference that you can make. Um, yeah. There's this uh, tweet <laughs> that I, I shared with you from Steve Kirsch. Um, oh, what was that Big one? news <laughs> in uh, STARS. Uh, up to 25,800 may have been killed by the COVID vaccine. I bet this is a lower bound on the number killed by the safe and effective, in quotes, vaccines. Why isn't anyone yeah. at the CDC or FDA warning the American public of the danger in the meantime? Question mark, question mark. And then he links to this uh, blog post. And the bottom of the blog post is <laughs> the uh, original podcast that he was on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's citing up uh, an article oh, that's citing that. himself. That, that is pretty funny. <laughs> it's like, look, this guy is talking about how many people might have died from this vaccine. And then the person that the person he's citing is citing is him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, isn't necessarily wrong, but it, it doesn't really give any new information. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's the... Um, where did you get it from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the human centipede of information. Uh, no. <laughs> Basically, as a summary. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is, like, such a glaring hole in that episode. And, um, yeah, they definitely say lower bound a lot of times, too. Because as you mentioned in that tweet, that's something they mention multiple times. It's like, this is a lower bound on our estimate of these side effects, which is simply untrue. Like, that, that, like that isn't a lower bound. Like, even if... Even if that is, like, the number, like, let's just assume it was, or whatever reason, that isn't a lower bound. Like, just logically, that doesn't make sense. Right. And what is so worrying about this particular uh, aspect to me is that, like, the other things I can understand that, you know, they would look into the research and they're not experts uh, or they're not expert enough themselves in talking with the community to like be able to suss out everything, but mm-hmm. they do their best and do some independent research and try to figure out what the mechanisms are, what the risks are, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But when they do this sort of reading, it's just such a, uh, like a huge misinterpretation. Like it's not even that they like looked at some data and ignored others. It's just that they took this piece of data that is publicly available and then wildly misconstrued it. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much uh, accurate to what happened with that data. And it has been called out multiple times by other people. But it, it's one of those things that caches in people's minds really easily. Because mm-hmm. imagine that you're trying to convince people that the vaccine is dangerous. Having a database you can point to and say, look, 12,000 people died after taking the vaccine. Look at that. Why does no one talk about that? Uh, that's like a very easy thing to point to. And yeah. Imagine you're not familiar with the specifics of how the VAERS system works or how drug trials work or, you know, investigations into safety and things like that. You would just be like, oh, 12,000 people died after taking the vaccine. 12,000 people died after taking the vaccine. Like, that, that's just what it is. It means the vaccine killed 12,000 people. Um, and it's exactly. a very easy thing to tell people. And I, I continue to see it when I sometimes glance at Twitter and talk about things. Uh, or I, I don't talk about things, but I see people talking about things. I mean, I don't, I don't actually usually post on Twitter or ever. But, um, but sometimes when I see people talking about things, this right. is just a thing that continues to come up continually. Uh, 
And I'm not sure if, I, I bet it didn't originate here, but it's certainly being spread here and purported as a the correct interpretation of the data. In fact, they don't really talk about other interpretations. They don't mention the idea that any of these could not be attributed to it. Like, for example, if they had said um, that they believe this might be a lower estimate because even though people report uh, things that aren't related to the vaccine in there or things like that, uh, they, they don't even mention that as a possibility, which was striking to me personally, because even if they interpreted this as lower than the actual amount of problems caused directly by the vaccine, um, the fact that they don't mention the possibility of these events being caused by something other than the vaccine in a mass inoculation event was a very glaring omission to me. Um, yeah, yeah, like that's that is a thing that you should notice uh, immediately. Like, of course, not all of them are going to be attributed to the vaccine, so you have to ask, well, how many? But they never ask that question. Yeah, exactly. They, they just say, okay, these are attributed to the vaccine, and it's a lower bound because more people should, would have submitted them if they knew about it. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think, so perhaps the implicit assumption is that there just aren't that many people that are falsely reporting, as they might call it. Or Yeah, that, that could be an implicit assumption. They don't address that, though. So it, it's possible that they thought about it and just assumed that the number was so small that it wouldn't make any difference. Or that it like it was a negligible number in terms of the analysis. I don't know how they could have come up with that idea, but that could be an assumption that they were making that they just never discussed. But certainly they never discussed making that assumption if it is one that they had. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. So so what we've covered here regarding this is that there is certainly no logical implication that given this amount of data in the VARES database that says this many people had this many side effects, uh, that doesn't say really much of anything about uh, how many people had side effects that were uh, caused by the COVID vaccines. Exactly. The role of the VAERS database is to provide information such that then can be investigated to create the information that would be how many of these side effects are attributed to it. Yeah. And that is what it has been used for, such that they are investigated. And uh, you, you could just say that the... Um, CDC is lying or the FDA is lying or whatever, that they just, when they investigate it, they just say that it wasn't because of the vaccine, even though they know it was. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the reality is when they investigate them, it doesn't seem like these deaths are all caused by the vaccine. Yeah. I mean, if you could show evidence of people being suppressed from logging their info on the public database, then yeah, maybe that would be interesting. But I don't think I've heard of anything like that. Yeah, I think the closest I've heard to that is that the UI and UX is unfriendly or that um, people just don't know about it and that mm. suppresses them because they aren't told about the database or something because they don't happen to know about it after they get the vaccine. Um, so those are totally reasonable concerns, though, right? So Yeah, no, I, I don't think those are like things that are crazy to say. Mm -hmm. They're just not evidence of a big conspiracy to suppress people reporting. Right, and they're exactly. also things that have existed for a long time. Yeah, but they're also yeah. general reasonable concerns, I guess. Yeah, so the reasonable concern is that there are side effects that are not being logged in VARES. But um, you need to couple that concern with that there's a lot of side effects that are being logged in VARES that aren't a result of the vaccine. So mm -hmm. you, you need some extra uh, evidence to suggest exactly which side effects came from the vaccine. And that's where the VARES is supposed to be useful. It's like, okay, well, now we know what to investigate. Yeah. Okay, 
Well, I think we've we've covered this pretty well. Um, it's good though that we did because, but like you were saying before, this is a was one of their big points and is repeated in a lot of other places. Yeah, and it appeals very uh, easily to people that are not as familiar with exactly how virus is supposed to work. Yeah, and I think that so there are some other things they say about vaccines in this episode that are misleading. I mean, Steve here says something like. The majority of women, I don't remember what it was, like some large percentage of women have miscarriages after they have the vaccine. But he used data that was basically measured like two months after they got the vaccine. So that was like of the people, the women whose births went to completion after getting pregnant after getting the vaccine, they were almost all miscarriages. But it's because most of the women who were pregnant hadn't given birth yet. It, it was these, And it was like these crazy numbers that, you know, would make any physician's head turn. But anyway, so there were some other things they said, but it's probably also worth talking about what they say about um, ivermectin here. Ah, yes, yes. So that was the sort of first section is why there are problems with vaccines that need to be talked about, and they're talking about them. Mm -hmm. And then the second section was, here's this new drug, or not new, but here's this other drug, ivermectin, that's been around, and we can use it safely and effectively as a substitute. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, so... This is kind of interesting since I was just recently reading uh, the piece that Heather Hying wrote, wrote that um, about uh, driving SARS-CoV-2 to extinction, and they talk about some criticism of them. And one of the criticisms they point out is they say the Quillette piece, which was written by uh, some critics of theirs, Yuri uh, Dagan and Claire Lemon. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things they point out that is like ridiculous is in the Quillette piece, they say, oh, Brett or one of his podcast guests said that ivermectin was 99% effective in stopping COVID. And I was just listening to this episode earlier. And in fact, Brett doesn't say it's 99% effective. He says uh, ivermectin is something like 100% effective in stopping COVID. Um, and he says uh -huh. that right at the beginning, like that's front loaded information in the podcast. It's very clear that he has a very strong belief that um, ivermectin is essentially a complete solution to COVID at this point uh, when he's recording this podcast. So something like 100%. So that's like what, 30%? <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. You know, 30% plus or minus <laughs> 70%. 30 plus or minus 70. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, common, I mean, certainly knowledge. he doesn't say it's 100% effective, but if you're just listening casually, and you're not like paying attention to all the data he's sending or something, you would certainly come away with the impression that it's 100% effective. Or yeah. it is essentially 100% effective. That is certainly an impression that I got. Yeah, that's, that's the impression I got too. And maybe there's some distinctions in the language, but I honestly would kind of be surprised if people came away with the impression that it wasn't 100% effective if they were just hearing about it in this episode. <laughs> yeah. So he... Uh we can go the, along this because you're introducing the second part here in your pace, but he does reference a lot of places, a meta-analysis as like the core truth about ivermectin. And I don't know exactly what the current state of effectiveness so, it predicts is right now. So that's interesting. So, okay. So the thing, so actually we, we could talk about that, I guess, because there, so he points to one specific meta-analysis uh -huh. by uh, Tess Lowry, who I mentioned earlier uh, as being on the Rebel Wisdom oh, uh, right, right. show. Yeah. But she's uh, one of the big advocates for ivermectin, and she did a meta-analysis on it. And, in fact, 
Brett and Heather tend to cite this meta-analysis in particular because there are other meta-analyses that don't show it nearly as effective as this meta-analysis shows it to be. Um, so just to clarify, what exactly is a meta-analysis? I think we both know, but just to... Yeah, and also to that. clarify, because this, this meta-analysis has two parts. One is the treatment, and one is the prophylaxis, because that's something that they ah. make a big deal out of, too. But you, should, uh, meta- you should define those terms, too. Okay, yeah. So a meta-analysis is a basically a study where you look at a bunch of other studies that have been done, and you take the information from them, and you put them together, and then you say, okay, so what does this tell us about it? So let's say you have a drug, and one study says it's 40% effective, one study says it's 50% effective, one study says it's 60% effective. You can look at those and take them together and look at the sample sizes and say, oh, these studies are reliable or whatever. Uh, and then you can say, okay, you know, we can estimate that the overall effectiveness is around 50%. Because looking at the studies overall, like a meta-analysis of the studies, uh, results in a, a certain amount of information about the effectiveness of a drug or um or something else in this case we're talking about uh drugs but Mm -hmm. yeah so there is some data science to it where you have to figure out uh which studies you're going to include in your meta-analysis and then how strongly to weight them exactly yeah because obviously if you choose studies that are bad studies like if you choose a fraud like let's say you have a drug and it's one study says it's five percent effective one study says it's zero percent effective one study says it's like 5% harmful, and then one study says it's 90% effective, and then it turns out that study is fraudulent, then it gives you a very different picture of what the uh, effect is. Whereas if, for example, there's three, four studies that are pretty much the same, and one of them is fraudulent, but they're the same, then it won't really have a big effect. But um, it, it, you have to decide what's worth it. And when you exclude studies, obviously that impacts uh, the results of the meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's how there can be different meta-analysis, right? Because people yeah. make different decisions about how to do that. Yeah, so exclusion criteria, um, search criteria too. It's like what... So a common thing in meta-analysis is you have to search multiple databases. You have to decide what would qualify or disqualify a study before you do the searching mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that you aren't like biasing it by knowing it afterwards. Things like that. Um, yeah, so there are multiple things that can be done in order to make a meta-analysis that seems to uh, take a variety of evidence and accurately put it together such that you um, can kind of get an overview of the consensus of the data. So in particular, this person, uh, Tess Lowry, is that her name? Yes. Uh, she's making, or her and her team of researchers are making some decisions that are leading in their collection of their meta-analysis to end up with a higher effectiveness uh, than most other meta-analyses. Yeah, and so this is interesting too. So uh, I noticed that when I was reading their response to criticism, also Heather's response to driving SARS-CoV-2 to extinction, Oh, yes. They mentioned that there was a review from the Alberta Health Service in Canada that basically looked at multiple different meta-analyses. There was one from Lowry, one from someone named Paddy, one from someone named Hill. And they found that the Lowry meta-analysis was of, quote-unquote, critically low quality uh, using a tool called the AMSTAR2 tool. So this tool is typically used for a quick appraisal of studies using just specific methods. It's like, oh, do they do this? Yes or no. Do they do this? Yes or no. And then kind of seeing, okay, that gives you an overview of, is it a good study or a bad study? Hmm. Um, 
And Heather says, okay, this tool is mainly used for people who aren't health professionals to just quickly get an overview of the study. And, you know, if that's all they're applying, then, in fact, this is a misapplication of the tool uh, because they're not giving you, like, a full review of the paper. Therefore, we say that this analysis paper that says that her paper is of critically low quality is itself of critically low quality. But uh -huh. she doesn't address the concerns that are stated in the paper. Like, when I look at this Alberta Health Services paper, they say things like, uh, these are the criticisms of the Lowry paper. They say, did not explicitly state the review methods were established before the review was conducted, nor did the author use comprehensive literature strategies, i.e. multiple databases, provided keyword searches, etc. Um, they, uh, only one author performed the study selection data extraction. The author provided a table. There's, uh, there's no list of excluded studies or justification for the exclusions um, and stuff like that. So they have these specific criticisms that are then dismissed because this tool is not made to be a comprehensive tool for criticisms like that. Um, but there are these criticisms of that study in particular, which tends to be the one that is most specifically cited by Brett. And in fact, he did also have Tess Lowry on his show to talk about it and mm -hmm. why uh, even when, spoiler alert, later on, the biggest study proving ivermectin was effective was found to be highly irregular. Uh, and uh, in, in the level of like having people included in the study who are already dead, having multiple, having people included multiple times, stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, highly regular to that point. And also plagiarizing things like they just did plagiarize things in the study. And then, um, he, they excluded that study, but then like him and Tess, uh, had a podcast where they basically reassured everyone that despite excluding that study, um, the results are still very strong. In fact, they're even stronger than before in some ways that uh, ivermectin is a great prophylactic. Uh, though that did reduce the meta-analysis down to just two studies in it. But Oh, wait. So this meta-analysis has only two studies in it? Well, so it initially had three studies in it. Uh, uh -huh. so, or, so actually, I guess... So, okay, so this goes back to the point of the um, distinction between treatment and prophylaxis. Ah, so there are more studies on use of ivermectin as a treatment. There are many more studies on it as a treatment than as a prophylactic. And okay. there are reasons for that. I mean, for example, prophylactic studies tend to need to be much larger because um, if most people don't get infected anyway, then you, know, you need more people in order to establish an effect. You need more people to have a high enough power, as they would say, of the study to determine that there's a statistically significant effect. Um, and so, so prophylaxis so, is the use of ivermectin or uh, the use of a treatment as a preventative uh, measure against whatever yes. the condition is. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the the treatment here I'm saying is that if you give ivermectin to someone who is already sick with COVID, then it will help them recover faster and not die. The prophylaxis is if you take ivermectin every day before you are exposed to COVID, then you will not get COVID is the idea of the ivermectin prophylactic. Okay. And in the Lowry 2020 paper, there were three studies included that described the prophylaxis. One of them was the Elgazar study, which was then uh, pretty much found to be I know highly you're irregular. wanting Let's not say. to say the word fraudulent. <laughs> I, I mean, the thing is, we don't know that it's fraudulent. It could be incompetence or something, too. The thing is, like, I, I don't, I, like, I'm not just dancing around fraudulent. I don't necessarily think it could be. Oh, okay. It could also be, like, oh, no, they accidentally, like, had these crazy things in the database. I mean, I don't know specifically, but, uh, it, like, there are levels of incompetence that can look like fraud sometimes. Uh, though, actually, I mean, 
it was plagiarized. It did plagiarize stuff. Like the plagiarism is a thing that happened. Um, so I mean, that could have been an happen. accident. You never know. Yeah, so it could be that they plagiarized something and then also were highly incompetent. But I mean, those anyway. It, it doesn't really matter. Talking about this specific yeah, study just, isn't the point. <laughs> just to say that it was found to be bad quality data. Yeah, so, so this was a bad study, and therefore should not have been included. That reduces it down to two studies. Uh, one of which of those two studies is also questioned by certain other people uh, because it of the way that it tested multiple treatments at once, uh, and also it had issues with reporting the number of people involved in the trial in the tables and in the graphs, which were different, and in the text, which was different. Um, so there, there were also issues with that. And but anyway, so but that even. If you exclude that study, then there's only one study left in the quote-unquote meta-analysis. Um, but anyways, uh, but there well, aren't they, very many But they don't exclude at this so point. So they don't. So she doesn't exclude that. She still includes that other one. Okay. Um, she does say that there were concerns about it, uh, but still includes it anyway. Um, and also, yeah. So the, so they just keep these studies and say, you know, there are concerns, but they're fine. So, and Brett says, uh, okay. and as they discussed in their episode... They talk about how uh, they believe that even if there are issues with individual studies, a meta-analysis kind of rounds out the risk. Right. Um, that is the but, idea, right? Yes. I mean, that that's true. Uh, I think that... And they, they, they specifically disagree with the idea of garbage in, garbage out, uh, because some people say, you know, if you have a meta-analysis and you have bad studies, then it's garbage in, garbage out. They say... No, you can exclude the bad studies and then just have the average of the rest of them. But the issue with that is that... So, okay, so here's my issue with that, especially in this case. Mm-hmm. When, uh, and actually, I guess what this means is it reduces it down to two randomly controlled trials, uh, one of which is still somewhat suspect. Um, the, but there are a lot of what might be called observational data or experiential evidence from physicians who report data. Um, that uh, Tess Lowry personally believes should be emphasized much more in our analysis of data, and randomized controlled trials should be emphasized less. Um, which is an idea I'm skeptical of, because randomized controlled trials tend to work better for not having biases in them. Mm-hmm. Um, that is but, the way they're designed, right? Yes, exactly. They're controlled and randomized. And... Uh, but she believes that they should be emphasized less. Like, rather than a pyramid of data where certain types are considered more important, it should be a donut, uh, I, I believe she describes with Brett, or something like that, where the variety of different types, including just the experiential evidence or observational evidence, should be considered strongly. Uh-huh. Um, so I have heard Brett talk about this sort of thing as well in other contexts. So uh, mm-hmm. just just as a side point, and then you can continue going. Oh, no, that's fine, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, is that... We don't have he he admit, he totally admits that we don't have a lot of high quality randomized controlled data that we can look to for mm-hmm. uh, ivermectin's effectiveness as a prophylactic or treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his claim is that um, a couple factors. I want to make sure I get this clearly. Is that uh, we basically we need to make do with what we have and. Because it's so clear to him that the vaccines are dangerous, uh, we we really need to put a strong consideration on any alternatives. It's like we, we really need to care about the fact that an alternative could work. 
So if there's yeah. any evidence, then we need to really pay attention to that. I, I don't know if he would say that we need to like weight it higher uh, in particular, but he thinks that, you know, these, even if these meta-analyses are small, uh, we need to really uh, use that data as much as we can. Yeah. And I think the other argument is that they're small only when you limit them to the randomly controlled trials, which is typically what is done. But uh, Tess Lowry and Fred Weinstein make the case that they should instead, you can do a meta-analysis of this observational data, of this um, experiential data. The issue with that is it's unlikely that if there's a bias, it's not necessarily a random bias, I think. So this is... So this kind of reminds me, actually, of derivatives in the housing crisis of 2008-2009. Um, oh. I, don't, I don't Do you know the issue with that? Uh, this might be a bad analogy because it's obscure on its own. But, like, do you know how derivatives worked? <laughs> um, I don't think I'd be able to explain it. Do you have so, like, an easy summary? So, okay, so the idea is you have a mortgage, uh, and it means that you owe money to the bank, right? Yeah. Basically, it just means you owe money to the bank. And there are these very high-risk mortgages. Basically, they're paid to these families, or these families, or people, these people owe money to the bank, and they're very high-risk because it's quite likely they won't be able to pay because they're poor or whatever. But let's say you have 100 high-risk mortgages. Well, you could say that on average, 70% of them get paid back. So mm -hmm. then you could just create a derivative which has the value of, uh, which then conglomerates the, all, the, all this 100 households of debt and has a value of 0 0.7 times the total value of the debt. Because only on average, 70% of them would be uh, paid back. And then uh -huh. you can say, well, that has a much higher degree of certainty. So now you can say this is a safe bet for 70% of the uh, initial value, right? Yeah, yeah. The You're packaging is, the risk. Exactly. You package the risk. Therefore, um, it, it eliminates it because it, you know, like it averages out. Like sometimes right. it'll be more, sometimes it'll be less. The issue is these aren't random risks. They're correlated with each other. Yeah. Uh, when, if, like, a lot of people go into default, then that doesn't mean that a bunch of other people are less likely to default. It means everyone else is more likely to default. Uh, so, it, in that, that case causes these derivatives to be highly overestimated in how safe they are. In fact, the risk is much higher even when you package them like that. And I think it's similar with these meta-analyses of observational studies where you can say, well, look, you're taking a bunch of different doctors' observations. But the chances are, these doctors, if they have a bias, they might have the same bias. And instead of making it safer and eliminating it, you're just becoming more confident in something that is already biased because you're taking in this biased data. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense as an analogy? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, that does make sense to me. Right. Yeah. So, so and, and that's something that's kind of how I think about it. And that's why I'd be worried about just collecting a bunch of this potentially biased experiential data that isn't randomized or controlled and then saying, well, if you package it all together, then it becomes less risky. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that should be true, but that does seem, if I'm understanding correctly, that seems to be what they're advocating for. I think that is right. And that's probably a better summary of Brett's position on this than I was giving. Yeah, it's that we can use a, lot, a larger variety of low-quality data in place of a small amount of high-quality data. Yeah, I, th I think he says something like that, yeah. And I, I don't think that that is necessarily true, because it's like you can't take a bunch of low-risk uh, debt and you can't turn it into one big—or you can't take a bunch of high-risk debt and turn it into one big low-risk debt. 
it just remains one big high-risk debt. <laughs> um, and, you know, we kind of saw the consequences of thinking we can bundle that and make it safe in our financial system <laughs> a decade ago. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, so, yeah, that that is a cool analogy. So just to make sure that I'm understanding, uh, it's that um, you, what Brett and Tess are implicitly uh, using as their step of inference here is like, so if we take a bunch of low-quality data, it's going to be low-quality in that it's not very accurate. Mm-hmm. So it's like the the correct answer plus some amount of noise. Yeah, not very... Well, so I guess they would say that it's just not very precise. They would say it's accurate, but not precise. But it isn't necessarily accurate either. Probably. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. I forgot that those words are... Oh, yeah. <laughs> they mean something in, in particular. In context, at least they have... <laughs> so accuracy in this case means, like, it is the average close to the true average, and precision is kind of how big is the standard deviation, how uncertain ah. is the result. Okay, that, that's that's useful. Okay, so I'm talking about the the accuracy. Mm-hmm. So they're saying that it's very. Uh, this is accurate data in that um, if you take it all together and average it, it'll be close to the the correct answer. Mm-hmm. But it's not very precise because there's a lot of noise added to each one. Mm-hmm. So um, so when you take it all together, right? They're making this claim of uh, accuracy, so it's going to work. But you're saying that well, you can't really know that that's going to be true. That uh, yeah. the average of all this data is going to be close to the real average because there could be systematic biases in this kind of data, exactly. um, and you might expect there to be such systematic biases because they aren't being corrected for as they are in the randomly controlled trials. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. not randomized and they're not controlled in a comprehensive way. So. You probably shouldn't assume that they that if they do have a bias, it goes in every direction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I so I I, that, I personally strongly disagree with them about this. Uh, but I, I think the other point they make here is, oh, you know, only big rich drug companies can do big trials. Therefore, we should count on small trials because those are ones that can be done by people who don't have the funding of big pharma. Um, I I don't think this is necessarily true, given that there were big trials done on drugs like hydroxychloroquine in France. And in fact, there are larger studies ongoing about um, ivermectin now and stuff like that. Like there are, it's mm-hmm. not that large studies aren't done on anything else. And the idea that we should de-emphasize these randomly controlled trials is I don't know, it just doesn't seem like a good path in terms of evaluating evidence to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is certainly curious why you would want to de-emphasize them. Like, it might be that, well, we should include this other data. Maybe there's a reasonable argument for that. And then, you know, somehow you have to clean it somehow or you figure I mean, out think, some way to detect biases. I think that actually it's almost similar to theirs. Like, I think this observational data is actually quite important in terms of indicating where we need to do studies next. So, like, if a lot of uh, physicians are saying, oh, you know, I kind of think ivermectin is really useful for this, then I think that is a strong indication that we should then have randomized controlled trials studying ivermectin, right? Uh, Because, like, that Mm -hmm. that can be good preliminary data that we get out of just people doing things. It just shouldn't be considered evidence in the same way that it should be then advised clinically for people, the same way randomized controlled trials should be. 
Yeah, it's it is tricky to talk about this precisely. So it's not evidence, or it's not very strong evidence that ivermectin is effective, but it is uh, evidence that we should consider ivermectin a possibly uh, useful treatment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a a good way of saying it. And I think that's kind of what happened, right? It's like Mm -hmm. uh, there's a community of researchers and other people that uh, were paying attention to whatever data and saw ivermectin as being possibly promising. So there's been more trials on ivermectin because of that. Yeah, and I think especially trials on effectiveness as a treatment for people who are already infected with COVID. Ah, Uh, And as we see more data about that, it looks less promising than it did before. Uh, let's say. Uh, and in fact, this isn't something that is actually just ignored by the mainstream. Like, for example, uh, what I, here's something that I would consider a pretty mainstream virology opinion, the source of virology opinions, which is the podcast This Week in Virology, oh, which is yes. a great podcast, I think. It's very technical. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a lot of people who aren't actually interested in virology, <laughs> but um, I really like it. And, you know, so if you look back at their archive, you can see that they do have, that ivermectin does come up when they talk about their clinical updates to COVID-19 and stuff. And, but they don't talk about it in this kind of sensationalist way, like, is it great? Is it, does it do nothing? They just say, oh, there's been a new study about this. This is what we're talking about. And it goes back to March. You can kind of see that they were talking about it like, oh, it looks a little bit promising. Then you see some later episodes and it's like, oh, you know, this large study didn't seem to find a significant benefit. And, uh, it doesn't mean that there is no benefit, but we can kind of put an upper bound on the benefit and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they don't talk about it. It's just that they're mainly considering this these studies. And when they're looking at the evidence, it seems to not convince them that it is uh, as important as uh, some people would believe. Right. So... Uh... They've taken a look at it, and just like they've taken a look at probably a bunch of other possible treatments for COVID, mm-hmm. and it didn't seem to be as promising as it uh, may have been looking at the beginning. Yeah. After yeah. a further investigation. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a good summary. Um, I, I think I listened to one of the episodes you sent me. Um, I don't remember in particular. I think that one was about the lab leak, oh, where okay. they had yeah. someone who was giving evidence <laughs> against the lab leak hypothesis. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, totally and I, different. I think, yeah, and again, I think that was a pretty good episode. Like, I think that they were a bit too dismissive of the alternative perspectives, to be fair. But mm. also, I think that they gave great, like, forensic scientific evidence in favor of their points. Right, right, yeah, yeah. They they did it justice. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, I think that this points to uh, one of the things that we've been hinting at, but we haven't really addressed uh, directly, which is um, one of the big thing or i keep saying that well uh another thing that brett and his uh followers <laughs> seem to latch onto here is that, that makes it sound like a cult or something but I, <laughs> it's more like brett know, and, listeners <laughs> yeah 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 okay and his <laughs> listeners uh, I, I guess you could say followers too like in a social media sense but it makes it sound more creepy yes. I, I don't know his twitter yeah. followers <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so it's the the anti-establishment aspect of this, right? Mm-hmm. Is that his audience? I guess actually it might be the better term. So. Mm, yeah, okay, that's better. It's more general. So his uh, his audience that also is in favor of ivermectin, uh, especially. Mm-hmm. So is the anti-establishment aspect of this? Is that um, mm-hmm. ivermectin 
is not just some treatment. It's a treatment that is available uh, in a way that vaccines are not. So vaccines are produced by these pharmaceutical companies that had to do a bunch of contracts with all these uh, countries and like making lots of money and have a lot of institutional power behind them. And everyone's being told to get the vaccine and you're not allowed to like, you're considered an immoral person if you don't get it or question the vaccines. That's mm-hmm. like their take on the social situation right now. Yeah. And, and I because think in of some that, cases that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and because of that, um, that is evidence that we should be concerned about vaccines and especially we should be very uh, hopeful about alternative treatments, uh, especially ivermectin, since it seems to be the most promising from their perspective. Yeah, I think that's true. And I do think that there is yeah, what, what you might call an anti-establishment bias mm-hmm. because, um, I mean, I think this is a thing in general with not, not just Brett Weinstein, but also a lot of, what might be called like the alternative media landscape where uh, both the people who are um, like the media figures and their audiences tend to be very against, you know, establishment wisdom and ideas. Uh Uh, And for example, uh, in this case where it's like the establishment is saying vaccines are safe and then they say, Oh, well, wait, maybe, maybe not then. I don't know. Like we, we just shouldn't be listening to them. We should have our heterodox ideas. Right. And and same thing with like the lab leak. Like I think part of the reason why people like the lab leak was because it was against the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, no, I don't think that's the only reason. And I, I don't mean to say that the people making these decisions are doing it irrationally or anything like that. But I think that that is part of the appeal of it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a reason. Yeah, um, and I, and I, I have to admit, uh, personally, like the idea of anti-establishment things generally you know, has its appeal to me personally. It's like, oh, uh-huh. if this is against, like, conventional wisdom, then it kind of feels like you know something other people don't, right? It's like, <laughs> and, and I mean, there's a kind of sense of like, oh, yeah, like, that's really cool. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning things that, like, you know, the sheeple don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but, like, you know, in a kind of um, exaggerated sense, that, that's kind of the feeling you get. It's like, oh, yeah, like, I know the reality behind things. I'm not falling for the facade that's put up by the establishment, right? Right. And I mean, it's uh, not... It doesn't apply to everything. It's like there's a particular subset of things that this is particularly appealing to. So, like, if if your anti-establishment position is that uh, the oceans are actually red, the, the <laughs> blue color is just, like, an illusion or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, that that's not going to win you any points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> but if you think that the thing that is, like, the government's trying to force you to do something that uh, seems like something that you should have a choice about. Or, and people are telling you, like, there's questions that they don't want you to ask. Then you feel like, ah, well, uh, they're trying to get me to, like, believe something that isn't true, right? Yeah, they're and trying in to fact, trick actually, me. that's a big thing, too, where if you feel like you're being forced to do something, then you have a big backlash to it. And I think that's actually an issue here where if... Uh, Brett and other people who have similar opinions to him were more careful in their message, they would have a very good point here, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so what, what was that point? Which is that, you know, these, for example, social media companies and stuff like that shouldn't be censoring scientific discussions uh, about possibly how to act in a pandemic. Um, right. So, for example, YouTube has a policy of 
not only um, restricting people from giving clinical advice, like saying you should take this drug, which I think is somewhat understandable, you know, from YouTube. Like, you know, they don't want people being like, oh, you know, I took this drug after seeing it on YouTube. Yeah. But they also <laughs> prohibit conversations that seem to imply that ivermectin is effective. Um, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And, you know, and that seems even in the case where ivermectin is not effective or it is uncertain if it's effective, which seems to be the situation we're in now where there doesn't seem to be strong evidence. So we should just not be very certain. The idea that you can't say one possible outcome from analyzing the data is worrying, right? Yeah. Yeah, very much. Like, I, I think that that's a bad thing. And I think that if you see that, then it's kind of natural to be like, well, if they don't want me to see this, then I'm going to push back and believe that it's very effective. If they say I can't even say it's effective, then why would they be saying that? They're probably hiding something. You know, maybe they're in bed exactly. with Big Pharma or something. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know why YouTube would be, but, you know, for some reason they are. And, you know, but just well, the, the government is forcing them to, right? Yeah. yeah. Just the fact that they're, they're telling you not to is a reason for you to want to do it, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's immediately understandable why that would be appealing. Yeah, exactly. And and honestly, I think it's a good criticism of YouTube since I think YouTube should not have that policy or, you know, be very clear about it. Like, so actually, the Rebel Wisdom podcast, which we talked about a couple times before, uh, was because they had, you know, for example, Yuri Dagan on it debunking what uh, some of Brett's claims in a very comprehensive podcast or video I'd recommend. He also had uh, one where he had Tess Lowry interviewed along with some other people who disagreed with her. And in fact, that episode or that, that mini documentary or whatever it's called was removed from YouTube, despite yeah. the fact that I came away with it with the impression that uh, there were very good criticisms of the pro-ivermectin crowd. It was removed from YouTube and uh, he was given a warning. He then appealed it and it was put back. But the fact that it was removed in the first place is worrying. I mean, some of the quotes in that that made me initially quite worried about bias on the ivermectin side. Like, for example, here's one quote from that video that was removed where um, the host of Rebel Wisdom asked Tess Lowry, what evidence would persuade you that ivermectin doesn't work? And then she responded with a chuckle and said, ivermectin works. There's nothing that would persuade me. And when you're trying to look at something from a rational scientific point of view, that's quite worrying. But even weirder is that that documentary would be removed from YouTube by being censored. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't think that necessarily puts it in a great light. Though, apparently when I read the comments afterwards, everyone thought that she was in the right. So I, maybe I'm just like misunderstanding that, but everyone was on her side in the comments there. So I don't know what that says about his audience or um, anything. Though his is also very, I, I suspect his audience overlaps a lot with Brett's and everything. So. It yeah. means you just weren't understanding the video correctly. That's what it yeah, means. Yeah, you know, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And <laughs> I, I, I saw another comment under the Yuri Dagan video where he's like, yeah, you know, Yuri makes a lot of really great points. I feel a lot more informed now. I'm still not getting vaccinated, but I'm glad I was informed. And now, uh, and I understand his perspective more. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I guess that's, that's reasonable in the right direction. I guess. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, it certainly... Yeah, I, I, and you can kind of see the distress of that guy uh, uh, in terms of trying to convince people about uh, what he... Like, I, I think that his opinion is that ivermectin is uncertain and the vaccines seem to be safe. And he 
is trying to push his audience in that direction, but I don't think that they agree with him on average. But I think that's an impressive thing to do, going against your audience, because it just results in less money and stuff. Like, people will be less in favor of it. Um, uh-huh. Like, I, I think that that is another thing that... I, sorry, this might be getting off topic. This might be... I think we can talk about audience capture a little bit later. But, um... Okay. Anyway, well, so we what, what were we talking about keep... right before this? I, what were we talking about before I got off topic on this? Oh, censorship. Oh, These social. No, this issues, is right? this yeah. is the topic for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, I think that that is a, a very interesting example that uh, the documentary, like, really trying to pick the brain of this person that is uh, one of the prominent data scientists behind. Why and it I wasn't just this. about her. It did feature her most prominently, but it also oh, had okay. a couple other people who had what I thought were good counterpoints to a lot of her ideas. Um, ah, okay. Like interspersed in between. Like she would say, like, uh, look, you know, big pharma companies will always suppress these small generic drugs and they won't allow trials of them. And then someone else says, Oh, but then there have been these trials of these steroids that are now in common use in their generic medicines, and those are now commonly accepted as it. How do, how could that happen if it would have been suppressed otherwise or or things like that? Um, uh-huh. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I haven't watched this documentary slash video. Yeah, I, so. I'd recommend it. I think it's I think it's interesting. So. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll check it out for sure. I, I didn't know much about this channel before, but watching the past couple of their videos, I kind of liked the the YouTube channel at least. Huh. Trouble with them. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> don't want to show too much. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, podcast slash YouTube channel for people uh, to check yes, out. Another one. Another one. Uh uh-huh. So, um, in terms of that dynamic right so the worrying part is that uh there's this contentious issue that is being publicly debated Mm -hmm. and youtube basically takes a side Mm -hmm. and says that if you uh disagree with that perspective then your video is going to get banned from youtube yes and the problem with that (laughs) right uh, or at least uh, maybe if you appeal then they might put it back i i guess i would assume that's in violation of the policy but i, I don't know uh, they well would say. so i think the thing is that as long as you supposedly as long as you show the other side too then it should be okay oh, but really? with youtube it's very opaque as always and hard to tell they'll ban it first and then they'll decide if you show the other side <laughs> like actually <laughs> i mean that's, that's what'll happen i mean that's what happened with the rebel wisdom one they banned it first then he appealed it and got it back later <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know that's going to happen. You don't know why it would be removed or put back in the first place. <laughs> right, exactly. They don't give any details. So, Yeah. And yet, these are companies that essentially are controlling the public square. Right. So, I mean, you can share videos other ways, but YouTube is one of the primary ways that you would get uh, videos shared to a wide audience. Yeah. Like, if you can't post out something on Twitter or Facebook and you or YouTube, then it becomes a much harder to get out a conversation or an idea. So Yes, for sure. Even if it is still technically possible. But um, yeah, and I think that if, for example, Brett had said, you know, we don't know about this yet. We don't know about ivermectin, but YouTube shouldn't be censoring these conversations because the result isn't determined already. They shouldn't have already decided the outcome before we know, um, which I think would be totally reasonable. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the issue is just that he believes very strongly in the position that youtube believes very strongly against <laughs> yeah so we certainly are on the side that uh brett is probably wrong about his conclusions yeah but... i mean I, i'd say that i'm uncertain but i think that the issue is kind of how much uncertainty there is with this like oh yeah yeah, yeah. 
I, I think yeah, he's but, wrong in the strength of his conclusions, especially. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if ivermectin is somewhat effective. I'd be very surprised if it was 95% effective. And I also think that even if it was 95% effective, we should not believe that at this point. Oh, yeah. So given yeah. the evidence, right, it yeah. certainly does not seem conclusive that mm. ivermectin is Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, when they're having these arguments and uh, one side is not being shown, the the problem with that is, well, if you're not allowed to argue for one side, then you're not going to get good arguments against the status quo mm-hmm. uh, presented in public. Yeah. Because those people are not going to be able to present their views. And that's a problem because you want to improve whatever the status quo is by uh, criticizing it and fixing the things that are wrong. Yeah, exactly. I, ideally, that's what. Yeah, you'd want. I, that, that's how it should work. <laughs> according to us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. According to our, you know, divine providence of understanding <laughs> how society should be structured. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, saying, in general, I think it's a good yeah. idea to be able to criticize things and then therefore improve them through that. <laughs> in contrast to YouTube's divine providence, yes. that is a little bit more real in this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. they are given the power by the divine providence of the market. <laughs> Yep, it's just that that's good. It's that good of a service. I yep. still use it. Yeah, I mean, I still use YouTube. I use YouTube <laughs> all the time, even though I disagree with their censorship policies. Uh, I mean, yep. I, I Brett Weinstein still uses YouTube all the time. <laughs> but the thing is, you kind of have to if you're that big because it, YouTube is so big. Like a lot of people, like you to have a sizable audience for videos, you kind of need YouTube. Does he still have his channel on YouTube, Brett? Uh, let me check. I'm pretty sure. I would assume he would have gotten banned for doing the Evermark. No, I think stuff. that they just removed that video oh so he just doesn't post his podcast up anymore uh, so no he posts his podcast episodes just not some of them oh like oh. so i'm looking at it and i i think i don't see the how to save the world one but i do see his other most recent ones like from three days ago and he posts them on odyssey i think too but right okay i think I've and also you know just as a podcast which is how i listen to them podcast yeah like on overcast or something yeah, podcast hosting is much more uh, decentralized than video hosting. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm worried about something like Spotify or something trying to centralize it. But regardless. Um, <laughs> Ugh, Spotify. Uh, it, 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 that's kind of a different conversation. <laughs> but um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, Without but, complicating it too much. Yeah, but I, th- I think the idea of having this anti-establishment force is good. I think that he's just very certain. And then therefore because of that certainty is effectively advising people to take medical action like he doesn't say you should not get vaccinated but if you watch his podcast episodes you'll come away with the impression that huh i probably shouldn't get vaccinated i should take ivermectin um and i think that that is not a good conclusion for people to come away with uh, <laughs> to uh-huh. say the least. yeah uh so okay so there's an aspect here of like okay uh what do we think he's right about what do we think he's wrong about and then there's another aspect which is like uh is it a good thing that he's talking about this in public right yeah so i guess this kind of relates to uh sam harris's criticism yeah i think think that's what you were leading up to yeah (laughs) so right there's this episode that sam did recently with eric topol where they discuss the ivermectin situation, uh, and in particular, Brett 
not the entire episode, but they make some specific references to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, like I, this is something that I told you earlier where there's some ambiguity because at the beginning he's talking about <laughs> people who aren't getting vaccinated in general. But then later on, they talk more specifically about Brett and the Dark Horse podcast with Heather. Um, uh-huh. So it seems so then from that, you can kind of extrapolate that the things they were talking about earlier were Brett or were represented the Dark Horse perspective. But I don't necessarily think that was actually true. Uh, for example, there was this dichotomy where Sam Harris says, um, you know, most people who are skeptical of the vaccine also don't think COVID is a big deal. And most mm-hmm. people who are very worried about COVID want to get the vaccine. Um, and obviously yes. that doesn't apply to the Dark Horde podcast with Brett and Heather uh, because they are both concerned about the uh, COVID, but um, also are worried about the vaccine. Uh, however, I think Sam's point was that in general, of the four groups, which is worried about both, uh, worried about vaccine, not about COVID, worried about COVID, not about the vaccine, or not worried about either one, there are many more people in either the worried about COVID, not about the vaccine, or worried about the vaccine, not about COVID, than there are people who are worried about both or not worried about both. And I right, think in yeah. general, that seems to be true, even if it doesn't apply to them. But because he only ever specifically mentioned uh, Brett Weinstein and the Dark Horse podcast, or him and Eric, then you could almost assume that that fits them. But I'm not Sure. I mean, certainly they took it to mean that, and they took it as like a, a straw man of their position. But you I don't could think almost that's assume, yes, yeah, as in they did uh, yeah. take it that way. And, right? and, but I don't think it's necessarily an unreasonable assumption given the structure of the podcast. Right. Yeah, I can see that's how you're phrasing this. So, and also just to clarify how you're presenting it here. So they did this episode, and then Brett did an episode in response to it. So they bring up some criticisms, and we're sort of preemptively pointing them out as we describe what that episode did, had in the first oh place. yeah that's true that that that's kind of saying them before yeah <laughs> but it, it's fine it, it makes sense mm-hmm. right so there's this point about people taking covid seriously are the one or the people that don't take covid seriously are the ones that aren't getting vaccinated uh that's one point um and then they make a couple other points right so eric tobel has uh, some specific points about the uh vaccines and then some things about ivermectin yeah, yeah, they have a variety of um, specific criticisms of uh, the perspective of people who are skeptical of the safety of the vaccine. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I agree with them. So there's not too much for me to say that's different. But mm-hmm. certainly it comes off as somewhat abrasive. Not as much as, for example, Yuri Dagan's video, <laughs> which is, or his article, which is, or him, or him and Claire's article, I mean, which is quite abrasive but uh somewhat like i mean i can imagine that if i already disagree if i was skeptical of vaccines and i listened to this i don't think i would necessarily uh be a big fan of it and you know sam recognizes that was a limitation in his follow-up episode but um yeah but for the most part i do think that they were saying accurate things about the safety of the vaccines and stuff and i don't think that uh i i don't i don't think that red and heather did an adequate uh, job of responding to all the things that they said and things that have been said to them in general. So. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of things here. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> to start off, let's just keep going through the, the Sam and Topol episode. Um, yeah. So I 
I could sense that there were some parts that were more aggressive uh, towards, you know, vaccine hesitant people. Mm-hmm. But on the most part, I think it was probably fine. And uh, Sam just says at the beginning that that's his goal is like, this is a podcast that you could share with your vaccine hesitant friend and it would sway them towards getting a vaccine. Yeah. I'm not sure how but, successful it is in that goal, but it certainly is something <laughs> that he aimed for, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true okay so we know for sure that's what his intention was yeah uh i think it was fine i think it definitely could have been better of course but mm-hmm. uh I, I don't think it was nearly as bad as it, as uh other attempts have been and certainly his follow-up episode was <laughs> yeah i think that's that's fair i think his follow-up episode was very unlikely to convince anyone who didn't already agree with him um I, we could probably go into that but i don't know if there, well, is there anything else you want to say about this episode first though well, there was one point that uh, ha- related back to the original uh, Saving the World episode, which was that Topol claims that Malone was not the inventor, the inventor of RNA vaccines, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's uh, and there's a few other things like the one you already mentioned about whether they were talking about Brett in particular or just people in general uh, that. There were some like misunderstandings between the two in uh, podcasts, and this seems to cause a sort of rift where, basically, in Brett's follow-up episode, he responds to all of these points that I think were clearly misinterpretations uh, from like what they were intending to mean on uh, the Topol and Sam episode, but. I I can see how you could have misinterpreted it that way. Yeah. I don't I think it's pretty clear that that's not what they meant, but I can see how you could misinterpret it. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely reasonable to interpret it misinterpret it that way. But yeah. 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 So I think the Malone thing is I mean it's kind of interesting. It's kind of not, because I think it was also kind <laughs> of a straightforward misunderstanding, but maybe not so straightforward because So what it is is uh Topol says, you know, uh Dr. Malone was not the inventor of RNA vaccines, of mRNA vaccines. Um, on their podcast, uh, either Brett or Heather, I forgot who it was, says he definitely was the inventor. You can just look up the papers. Um, and in fact, what it was is that the implication when you... Okay, so I think there's a difference in implication here, which is mm-hmm. when you say someone is the inventor of mRNA vaccines, it makes it sound like they were involved in mRNA vaccines that were in production and put into people or something, right? It sounds like yeah. they invented a product. It's it like like if someone says, uh, like, oh, I invented the computer mouse, it makes it sound like, oh, they invented the first computer mouse that went to market. But, something like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. And on the other hand, if someone, for example, invents the technology to track a position using a ball... Uh, which is then used in a computer mouse later. And then you wouldn't say that they were the the inventor of the computer mouse, but you might say they're the inventor of someone who developed technology that went into the computer mouse. Computer mouse technology. Yeah, computer mouse technology. And that right. is kind of more what the situation with Malone is, where he did work on what might be called precursor technology 30 years ago for mRNA vaccines. Um Back when it was adapting technology used for gene therapy, which he tends to use that word a lot when I think it's misleading because it implies that it's actually changing like the uh, people's chromosomes and stuff like that, like the DNA in their cells, uh, when in fact it isn't. 
But um, he doesn't actually say that. And it is accurate that it was repurposing uh, technology. It's just, um, yeah, anyway. But yeah, so, but, so he did work on precursor technology, uh, but he did not, he wasn't directly involved in the creation of any of the current or ever production of mRNA vaccines that went into people. Uh, yeah. And it kind of gives him, and I, I, he wasn't even like the sole inventor. He was one of the people that worked on it. But he was, but he definitely did work on it earlier. Like it's, and he obviously is like a, like good scientist and everything with regards to that. Um, it's just, I think the implication would be, therefore, he has special knowledge about the current mRNA vaccines. And if he says there's a problem, it's like a whistleblower type thing. Like he knows the the stuff behind it. And when he says there's a problem, it's because people know there's a problem, but they're just not saying it. Uh, when in reality, he worked on precursor technology a while ago and it has concerns now, but that isn't the same as if someone like who worked at Pfizer and was the head of the project stepped out and said that they think there are huge concerns that are being covered up, right? Right, yeah. So he's presented as if he has like special knowledge about the current situation. Exactly, yeah. And you know, he, he is an expert in a field that's somewhat close by, Though he hasn't, as far as I know, done mRNA vaccine research for 30 years. Uh, but, you know, he did have expertise in the field, for sure. Uh, uh-huh. But it sounds like he... It, the, the way it makes it sound is it sounds like he's much more of a close expert in this spe- a very specific issue than you might actually think if you look into his actual background. But uh-huh. it's not that anyone lied. It's just that I think yeah, there was yeah. misleading and then correcting the misleading in a way that sounds like you're just denying all involvement of him in work that he actually did do. So, I don't know. <laughs> and it seems relevant information that, like, yes, you are the inventor of mRNA vaccine technology, or an inventor of mm-hmm. the technology. But it's been some time since it was invented, and it's being used now in, like, modern technology. So, they didn't mention that at all in the episode, and I think that was, like... That's true. Pretty they, they gross yeah. negligence. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly it, like, I, I didn't know about this guy personally before I listened to the episode, and I came away with the impression that he created mRNA vaccines for people. Like, <laughs> Oh, you know, oh man, this, you're going to love this. So I looked up his Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. And this is his bio. Inventor of mRNA vaccines and RNA as a drug. Hmm. <laughs> it's like the most ambiguous way to say it <laughs> yeah the thing is it's something where like if you don't know what it means it makes it like oh it sounds like he invented the mrna vaccines and rna as a drug but also technically it's vague enough to say that he is a inventor of mrna vaccines in the past and rna as a drug right he didn't use any uh, articles right it's just inventor of rna vaccines <laughs> yeah um not the inventor of the rna vaccines yeah uh which is yeah i mean i'd say that's misleading for the purpose of clout probably um but it's not technically a lie i don't know that's probably not good (laughs) (laughs) yeah at at the very least misleading (laughs) it's ironic though because we were we were quibbling about the word technology being used right but he he didn't even use use it it. I, I think they must have used that in a podcast or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to talk on. Yeah. But okay. yeah, I think his Twitter bio, for example, is just um, 
misleading if you don't already know what he did. <laughs> yeah. It's not a super interesting point, but it it was apparently one of the bigger points that they decided to address later That's on. That's true. So. I think they spent more time on that than most of the other points in the episode, <laughs> actually. Uh, but I mean, yeah. to be fair, they were saying it like it was like, oh, wow, how could they have this gross negligence of lying about Dr. Malone's credentials or something? Right, right. Um, That's which, how they I mean, it. would be an issue, but I don't think that was the issue. I think they just took a very uncharitable interpretation of it. Yeah, that is certainly what happened for sure. Um, so, okay, that was one thing. Um, that basically, so in their response, they replied to a couple of things. In particular, they didn't reply to any of the data arguments. So they didn't say, like, you pointed to this evidence and we have this evidence that contradicts it. They yeah. basically were just saying, like, you you lied about a bunch of things, and here's, like, three things you lied Notably, about. Notably, that's also true with their criticisms of the Quillette article, I think, and oh. Yuri Dagan, uh, because, you know, Yuri will say, like, okay, look at this data. It's the opposite of what someone said on your podcast. And they'll say, okay, but look, you misused this term or something like that. Um, somewhere oh, else that's right. And that was fact, one. I, yeah. <laughs> And actually, I don't think he misused the term since he gave an explanation later. Uh, I think it was a misinterpretation. But also, I think the writing style wasn't great. So I can see that's another thing where it's an understandable misunderstanding on their part. But I don't mm. think that would really invalidate his point when they said, like, oh, if he made this mistake, we really shouldn't even consider the rest of it. Um, right. And it's also similar to the criticism of the criticism of Tess Lowry's meta-analysis, where rather than talking, rather than addressing the specific complaints they had about her meta-analysis, they just said, oh, you're using this tool incorrectly. Uh, therefore, your analysis of her meta-analysis is garbage. So we don't need to address it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it almost feels like an appeal to authority, essentially. It's like you're, you're not addressing the content. You're just saying, well, it came from this source, so that means it must not be right. Yeah, it came from this source that made this small error or this yeah. source that made some sort of error therefore we don't need to address the rest of the arguments um i think yeah yeah exactly yeah maybe that's not called appeal to authority i'm thinking of something else i guess it's is it an ad hominem i'm not sure that might not be. uh if it is attacking the credibility of the other side i'm not sure though Yes, maybe there's not a name for it, but right. So they rather than say their point is wrong because we have evidence that disagrees with it, they say they made this mistake, which is obviously wrong for this trivial reason. Yeah. Therefore, we don't get we we don't even have to address the the other points they made. Yeah, and like Yuri will say, oh, this study that found 100% effectiveness uh, for this drug seems sketchy to me. And they'll say, what, when he says it seems sketchy or it doesn't pass the smell test, then they'll say, what, is he accusing them of fraud? That's a very right. serious accusation. How could he not trust the study that shows 100% effectiveness? It might, like, you, you can't deny that this was a professor that published this study. Are you, are you like, trying to say that he's a liar and a fraud? Or, and um, that, that, that doesn't seem to address the argument that the result itself of 100% effectiveness, even if ivermectin was 80% effective, would be almost impossible to get. Like, if ivermectin is 80% effective, it's still almost impossible to get at 100% effectiveness with that uh, sample size, especially considering there were like 90% of the 
control group that got infected or something. And then, mm -hmm. like, 0% of, like, the hundreds of people in the ivermectin and carrageenan group were. And then, I, so then, Yuri says, this doesn't pass the smell test. It seems like something is wrong here, which I think could either be fraud, but not necessarily, because it could also just be that there's some sort of bias. Carrageenan inhibits the PCR. Carrageenan has some other, whatever, there's multiple treatments. Uh -huh. um, or there's some issue with data collection or by whatever. But uh, Brett and Heather say, you know, look, he's basically accusing them of fraud. And that is crazy to do. You shouldn't do that without evidence. Just because it's this miraculous, you know, you can't just not believe it. You should just accept that it's that miraculous, um, is their argument, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And from their perspective, it is a pretty compelling case. It's like, well, they just want, to, they, they see our best evidence. It's like so strong in our position. And they just say, oh, it's too good to be true. How could they, mm -hmm. that's such an unreasonable argument, right? Yeah. You can't just say, oh, well, I, there's this evidence that I can't, I can't account for because it's just so good. Well, yeah. I'm just going to dismiss it, dismiss it because it's, it's too good to be true. And can't honestly, believe that it. is kind of a good point because like, you know, if evidence is really good, you can't, you shouldn't just dismiss it because it's too good to be true necessarily i mean to a certain point though like if something is just basically unheard of in clinical research then you have to think i wonder if there's something else going wrong here and you should probably put less emphasis on it yeah i mean it. it's it's not even the fact that it's too good to be true it's just too unlikely to be true yeah true mm -hmm. that's, that's a better that's actually that's a better way of putting it i think yeah. it could have been in the other direction and you would still have the same concern right? yeah if 100 percent of the people who took ivermectin got covid <laughs> then, I, then i'd probably say i don't think ivermectin does that it's probably that it was contaminated or something like that like i would say there's some flaw with the study like yeah 100 percent of the people who took ivermectin got covid and died instantly yeah. <laughs> i'd be like huh i wonder like how they accidentally mixed up their viral samples and their ivermectin like <laughs> <laughs> It's like that study, I mean, something is wrong with it. <laughs> if, if it's something shows that everyone who took ivermectin got COVID. Yeah, that's... <laughs> you know what they're going to eventually end up needing uh, the, the pro-ivermectin position is they're going to have to look in various for people that took ivermectin, right? And they're going to have all these diverse side effects. And it's like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Well, I, I don't know, because I think a lot of people taking ivermectin aren't doing it... Uh, in a way that would be fully reported and everything. I think it's, yeah, but, um, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, you mean they're just like, uh, buying it and yeah. not telling anyone. Yeah. I mean, I think people are just buying it like whatever, and then just using it right now in the U S at least probably in other places. It's not, and it's not like it hasn't been used before though. Also not at these doses, but. Right. Because, yeah. I think, yeah. That was something I forget when that originally popped up, but right they they talk about ivermectin being safe because it's a drug that people have used for a long time. Yeah, but they sort of make the inference from that that the way it's being used now for its uh, treatment effect is also safe. Yeah, and it's true that ivermectin has been used for a long time, and it has side effects but they tend to not be super common it's, it's a mostly safe it's a pretty safe drug in its normal usage but it's also taken usually like once every six months to a year to kill the parasites and stuff um and it's not the like once every week or every couple days that's recommended in terms of um this uh treatment is or either as a treatment or as a prophylactic in this case and there are some groups where it is you know 
would lead to it's not recommended to take it, for example, pregnant women and stuff like that, which is a group that they were especially hesitant to recommend COVID vaccines to. But it seems like yeah. ivermectin itself is not necessarily safe for pregnant women. Like, <laughs> uh, just for normal usage. Yeah, just for normal usage. Um, and this is certainly a much higher dose than normal usage would be. Uh-huh. So you would infer from that that it's probably much safer for pregnant women at higher doses, right? I think that's I think that's how it works. Yeah, it's like if something <laughs> is maybe not safe at low doses, I think if you take more of it, it's like the reverse homeopathy principle, right? You know? <laughs> if you have more of something, it does less. <laughs> basically, yeah, they do have a contention. Not exactly that, but basically that the dose of ivermectin, since we don't know the mechanism, might not have anything to do with its effect. And that's true, that mm-hmm. that could be possible. But it seems like the onus is on you to explain why having a higher dose wouldn't have more of an effect. I mean, if that's true, then, like, if they, so I don't think they believe that. I think they're putting that forward as kind of a hypothesis. Because if you believe the dose didn't have any, or, like, beyond a certain point, have any impact on its effect, you would say, take it once, and then you're good for six months, right? You wouldn't say, take it every week. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you actually believe that the dose didn't matter, um, you would say just take it at the currently recommended antiparasitic dosages. Does it like stay in your system for that long, like the six month period? No, no. The half. I mean, well, maybe in your fat or something. I mean, I know the half life in your blood is like eighteen hours or something. Uh, are you still there? Hey, oh, sorry. Did I cut out? Yeah. Oh, for, I was gonna, for just so, a couple seconds. Oh, okay. Well, you can cut this part out. But um, yeah. yeah, I think the half-life in your blood is something like 18 hours or, or something like that, which is one reason why, for example, some people are skeptical of it. Uh, but then they responded by saying, well, you know, the half-life in the blood doesn't mean that it can't be somewhere else, or maybe the, the concentration doesn't matter, even if it like the concentration gets really low or something like that. Possibly, right. No, they don't have evidence to believe that um, necessarily, but they're saying that yeah. is possible. Was that included in any of the, the trials in the meta-analysis? The, what, like? <laughs> how long it stays in your blood and how that affects its effectiveness? Um, I don't, well, so the thing is, the way the trials were done um, is that they give you a certain dosage at a certain time. They, they don't notice, like, how prophylactic is it at a certain time after you've taken it, right? They don't say, are you more protected on Friday than you were on Monday? I don't think any of them test that. And oh, also, I mean, to, to be fair, you... most of them aren't even prophylactic. Most of the studies about it are treatment studies. And yeah. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah. And yeah, though those didn't, I mean, those, I, so uh, the meta analyses of those wouldn't have shown a big effect of concentration because they also didn't show a big effect in general. Um, <laughs> but, uh-huh. <laughs> but that's kind yeah. of a different thing. Yeah, so <laughs> there's just not even the baseline of the effectiveness at all to talk about. In yeah, order there's to talk no about the fine grain reduction in mortality or something that they would say. But yeah, in the uh, and you're talking about the treatment side of in treatment. Right? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. So in treatment, it seems more and more likely that if it does have an effect, it's a modest effect, um, uh-huh. which would still be great to give people as a treatment. But it doesn't right. seem. It seems like we're mostly uncertain about its effect and if there is an effect it's not a big one um and then 
on the uh, prophylactic side, there's very little evidence at all. Like there's not there's not a lot of good studies that you can look at. Like like I said, the meta analysis that included the bad study uh, was already just three studies. <laughs> yeah, and that includes one study that was so bad it was retracted, and then one study that's still questioned by other people. So. <laughs> So not like the highest quality studies for sure. Yeah, I mean, and uh, even even Lowry uh, notes that the studies weren't super high quality when she includes them. It's just they were the only ones. Though noted by the like complaints about her study, she doesn't talk about what studies were excluded and why. She just includes certain studies. As in every other study than those were yeah. excluded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there were that many prophylactic studies done though. Oh, um, uh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> So, like, just just as a reference point, how many studies are generally included in these sorts of meta analyses? Um, I'm actually like not hundreds? sure about all the clinical ones. I can say that on the treatment side of ivermectin, it's like ten to twenty. Okay. Um, so much higher. It does depend on um what it is, but you know, I I would say that three is very low, and among those, they tend to be small and low quality, which is even more unusual in terms of increasing the uncertainty of the result uh-huh but even if it had a lot of low quality studies that would be worse right yeah I, well i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, depending on how low quality they are but like having more studies in general is good assuming that they're randomized controlled trials i mean <laughs> oh yes yes uh, so you need that check, right? Yeah, exactly. Because these aren't three like observational studies. These are three randomly controlled, randomized controlled trials. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh wait, so there are three randomized controlled trials, or that, were in that were included in Tess Lowry's meta analysis about prophylaxis. Ah, uh, okay. And so then, these were randomly controlled. Yeah, yeah. So these. Oh, sorry. So maybe that was unclear. So these were the three random randomized controlled trials. Um. And there were other experiential data, but those aren't usually taken as strong data. Uh, and of these three randomized controlled trials, one of them was extremely flawed to the point it was retracted. One of them is possibly quite flawed, and the other one might be okay, but also shows a lower effect. Uh-huh. But what is the effect that it's showing? Is this like, is the effect that they're getting, like the very high effect, coming from those three studies, or is it coming from? A, uh, a combination of that with yeah, I mean, the it's coming other from those. Data. One of those studies is the hundred percent study. Um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So mostly from that. One. <laughs> or, <laughs> or wait, they would argue oh, no, right? Oh no. So of those three, one of them was the Elgazar study, which showed I think something like ninety percent effectiveness. That one was later removed because it was retracted. Then of the two other studies, one of them is the one hundred percent study. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, yeah, uh, there might there might have been more since then, but those are the ones that were included in her meta analysis. Uh huh. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. And as far as I can tell, there. Yeah. But anyway, but the thing is also with prophylaxis studies, as I was saying, to have the same power as a treatment study, you need a larger number of people. Yes, just the number of people. Right. Yeah. That's the important so part. so you know you expect that to be larger. Even among these, they're pretty small. But yeah. As On the Eric scale Kobold. of like how big uh, these sorts of studies usually are. Uh, like these are a couple hundred people. Like the ideal studies you want are tens of thousands of people. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, not every study is this huge, like fifty thousand person study or something. Uh, but these studies were all on the scale of hundreds of people. So, yeah, certainly, uh -huh. 
small. Uh, small small for at least a study that has a group of people, not as small as a small experiential observational evidence that uh, they also cite, which is even smaller, of course. Oh, yeah. So small on the scale of these sorts of studies in this yeah, context. exactly. Okay. So what, what, what was your impression of the, the Topol and Sam episode? Did, you said they came off as a little bit abrasive, but... I mean, I don't... So I guess I would, maybe abrasive reasonable. isn't the right word, but like I think maybe somewhat dismissive, which, I mean, the thing is, like, I, I don't even know if that's, like, a big problem, because they're kind of dismissing a viewpoint that seems to be wrong, um, but... Like, well, dismissing I, I, usually I, means you uh, say, like, it's not reasonable without giving a reason why. Yeah, I guess they do give reasons why, so maybe it's not dismissive. Maybe that's not the right word. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought for the most part it was fine, personally. Like, when I was listening to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's mostly fine. I think that there were, I think that one of my complaints is that they were unclear when they were talking about people who are vaccine hesitant in general and when they were talking specifically about Brett and Dark Horse. Oh, um, sure. Because I think that that led to some confusion inadvertently because they could have been more clear on that. But for the most yeah, part, yeah. I thought it was um, fine. Like, was in there terms anything? Of yeah. Was there anything that struck you as wrong or bad conclusions? Like they supported something that you thought they shouldn't support? I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't... Nothing off the top of my head. Maybe he brought something to my mind specifically. Uh, I guess one thing is they did talk about the lab leak hypothesis and mentioned it as a case of the mainstream being wrong and then acknowledged it was reasonable but didn't give um, Brett credit for being early on concluding that it was plausible. Um, that might have been oh. something they should have done better. Um but I don't think it was a. But but I don't think that was like a major issue. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Maybe if something. Yeah, else comes I, up. I was just checking, but yeah, that was my impression too. It's like he he didn't really say anything that new. It was more just yeah, he's saying uh, Brett is saying, or you know, people who support ivermectin are saying a bunch of things, and there's a few like standard reasons why we don't think that's possible. Yeah, and vaccines are safe because we've done a bunch of tests, and they seem to be safe in all the tests. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think that's the best evidence for why they're safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like why Basically. are they safe? Well, a bunch of people took them, and as far as we can tell, it doesn't cause a bunch of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yes, they took them in a very special way that controls for all the biases. Yeah. <laughs> at least as much as we can. Yeah. I mean, they did, like, I mean, as far as I can tell, these vaccine studies were, if we talk about these ivermectin studies being small, low-power, biased, flawed, like, the vaccine studies are much better. <laughs> yeah. They're very large. They look for, they, they do things much more properly, uh, which makes sense because they also have a lot more money in them trying to make sure they get approved. But, mm-hmm. um they they tend to be done more quote unquote properly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean a partly what comes with that is that if there were problems with the drug, then it would be more clear in those studies as well. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, in fact, uh you we actually do see some problems that came up in these uh studies of like either immediately in the clinical trial or immediately afterwards, such as blood clotting caused by AstraZeneca mm. or um is it Epstein-Barr disease? I forgot exactly what it was, that nerve disease caused by Johnson & Johnson, where these are very rare outcomes, uh, but they're caught by the analyses of these vaccines, right? 
and then they caused them to be pulled from the market briefly before it was concluded that no, no, they're really, really rare. Um, it's like one or two in a million or something like that chance that you get a blood clot from AstraZeneca or whatever it is. Um, and that's acceptable risk. Yeah. Uh, especially compared to the risk of dying of COVID or having long-term COVID uh, symptoms, which is yeah. decidedly more than two in a million. Um, <laughs> let's say. Seems. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, like uh, it, it's not that no effects of these are ever found. And in fact, if you talk about regulatory capture, how could you imagine that these vaccines would be pulled for these like relatively minor problems if you think that these regulatory bodies are totally captured by big pharma, right? Like, how can you account for Johnson & Johnson being halted if you thought that the vaccines were just being pushed through despite any safety concern? Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, in uh, fact, we do see them <laughs> catching these rare safety problems, and then the regulatory bodies are highly concerned about them and pulled them temporarily, which I think probably did more harm than good in terms of making people more hesitant. But yes, ironically enough. Least, yeah, but at least it's evidence that they are concerned and they will pull them if they think they're a safety risk, right? Yeah. Like it seems like good evidence towards that point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such great evidence that they're like so concerned about safety that they'll pull it even when it's a minor risk that they eventually yeah. decide is worth it. I mean, I'm but, sure that cost Johnson and Johnson a lot of money. Uh and I'm sure, but they did it anyway, right? So I they can't be that captured that they wouldn't do it. <laughs> well, would it have cost them that much money cuz haven't they already gotten paid? That's true. They got paid a lot of stuff in advance. Um I guess maybe, maybe it cost Johnson & Johnson a lot of public reputation that they would have wanted. True. It probably cost them more because people now, if ever they can choose to get a vaccine, they'll be less likely to want Johnson & Johnson. Um, but maybe not that much money. But certainly it's something that Johnson & Johnson wouldn't want to happen, right? Like, That's if Johnson & Johnson yeah. controlled the regulatory bodies, they would not have gotten pulled. If AstraZeneca yes. controlled the European <laughs> regulatory bodies, it would never have gotten pulled, Right. Like, it, right. they, they wouldn't, they would have said, like, this safety is within risk, or they just would have not mentioned it. I mean, if they are hiding safety concerns, they would just have not mentioned this rare blood clot that only affects uh, two out of every million people, right? <laughs> right, yeah. It seems like they would prioritize <laughs> not showing any risks if yeah. they could get away with it. <laughs> like, going for something that's as sensitive as this seems like they're wasting a lot of resources uh, if they're actually in control yeah uh you could say oh but it's only pfizer that's in control and they're trying to hurt all the other vaccines no um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, that doesn't seem be. likely <laughs> given because <laughs> if the point is these companies have a lot of money johnson and johnson has a lot of money astrazeneca has a lot of money their weight is behind their vaccines and obviously their their weight and any pressure they put to bear on regulatory bodies wasn't enough to stop them from getting pulled despite very minor safety risks right yeah, you would need to show evidence of Pfizer having a special situation in this yeah. aspect. <laughs> and, of course, then you could say, with every if there's any vaccine that doesn't get pulled, then you could always say, no, no, but they're the ones in control. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, but it, it seems like that should be strong evidence against the idea that the regulatory bodies are totally captured, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it not even talking about how many people would have to be in on this to like yeah. fake the trials right oh yeah true <laughs> but yeah so not only did we catch these rare errors or not errors but problems in trials yeah. which is exactly what we would want to look for yeah um but we also were very cautious in policy response to these yeah. problems
And uh, you would expect that one, they wouldn't be caught if there. So if there was, if the hypothesis that there's regulatory capture and side effects are being hidden from people, you would expect one, these side effects would not be caught and well publicized, and two, that if they were caught, they would be totally minimized and no regulatory action would be taken. Right. But neither of those things happened. Therefore, so, it seems like that's strong evidence against the hypothesis that big pharma is in has any degree of strong control over regulatory bodies, at least in North America and Europe. Yes, that seems pretty definitive to me as well. And in fact, you would have to argue that these MR, for the mRNA vaccines, because they're global, you would need to argue that they have regulatory control over North America, Europe, Australia, Japan, like everywhere that authorized these vaccines for use, <laughs> right? It couldn't just be one place. It would need to be everywhere. Yes. Right. It's a global conspiracy. Mm. It, had to be. it would have to be. Of yes. course, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, like, it would have to be. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily a conspiracy, but some sort of pressure that uh, comes to bear on every health service, including the nationalized health services that don't that that are like fully publicly controlled in countries like that are not in the u.s or europe that don't have their own drug companies and stuff like that um and india who often you know fights for generic medicines and stuff and is like india for example is very strongly against um patent protection for medicines in uh from oh, yeah. you know like american european and uh drug companies and stuff like that uh -huh. uh, you know you'd have to say oh no but in fact, since the Indian health body, you know, approves some of these vaccines, they would also need to be captured despite incentives in the opposite direction, right? Right. Yeah. They have to go against, like, a long uh, precedent. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of issues with that uh, field theory of what's going on. So it seems pretty yeah. unlikely. I call it a hypothesis. Uh, <laughs> hypothesis. Yes. Good point. Um, but there's a slightly different hypothesis that is still very related, which is, well, maybe uh, the pharma companies are in charge of regulation, but somehow they are suppressing alternatives to vaccines. So only vaccines get recommended and tested. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, so, okay. So this would be that, you know, sure, the vaccines are safe and effective because they aren't regulating the, uh, they aren't controlling the regulatory bodies, right? So you yeah. need to conclude, okay, well, sure, they are safe and effective, but ivermectin is even safer and even more effective, for example. Um, and for that to be true, you would need to expect that pharma companies somehow stop uh, any alternative treatments from ever being approved or tried in a variety of countries, right? Uh, yes. And I think, so for example, you would have to believe that hydroxychloroquine would never have been tried or investigated at a large scale in large scale clinical studies. Yeah, which that fact, certainly would not support the hypothesis. Yeah, because it was investigated in large scale clinical studies and did not seem to be effective, but it was investigated. Like it, it, it was not suppressed. Uh, I mean, you could say, oh, it couldn't be suppressed because Trump talked about it. Uh, then you could say, <laughs> okay, look, what about steroids for uh, helping with symptoms and reducing mortality of patients and stuff? Uh, in some of these, like, and it's like, were those generic drugs never investigated? And in fact, they were investigated. And in fact, they were found to be effective. And in fact, now they're used in hospitals all around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. And sure, they aren't a prophylactic like um, vaccines. But that, like, I feel like you're just narrowing down and narrowing down uh, 
how like what specific control do these pharma companies have it's like sure they don't control you know like hiding the side effects of vaccines and sure they don't control treatment drugs and sure they don't control like these other generic medicines that might be prophylactic being investigated but they do control the successful prophylactic of ivermectin being investigated or used and it seems less and less likely to me i don't know what do you think yeah, that, that's basically what I would see as well, too, is that, sure, you can always make a possibility for it, but as soon as you're narrowing down the search space so specifically to something that's, like, extremely contrived, then it means that you're not actually, like, <laughs> starting from a hypothesis and testing yeah. it. You're sort of testing it and then extracting the hypothesis that's still true after you've looked at all the data. Yeah. Oh, uh, so dexamethasone is the one I was thinking of. The generic drug dexamethasone that is used, that's a generic steroid that is used uh, and can reduce deaths of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I think I remember you mentioning that, but I forgot the name. Yeah. I I forgot the name too, so I just looked it up now. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Which, I mean, you know, because I remembered it was a steroid and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, which, you know, might make us sound worse because I didn't remember the name until now and I admitted it. But, you know, it's true. <laughs> anyway, but, but the know. point stands, like, you know, it's a generic drug, dexamethasone, that they didn't suppress. Why didn't they suppress it? Right, yeah. <laughs> they uh, they seemed, so all the incentives, or at least most of the incentives that are being used to justify the fact that they're suppressing ivermectin also apply to this case, but it seems to not have uh, caused it to not be approved and used and even if it's an absolute proof that they're not suppressing ivermectin it should be some level of evidence against that fact i think exactly Uh, right and same thing with the large investigations of hydroxychloroquine that should also be evidence against the fact that they're suppressing investigations of generic drugs yeah so we have cases of investigating other generic drugs and also even approving them and using them in a widespread yeah. way. So and clearly it's possible. with even a uh, prophylactic or supposedly had prophylactic benefits. And that was still investigated. Yeah, I remember that. Trump's uh, treatment, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it really is one of those things that I guess it's kind of like ivermectin in that early on it did seem to have promise. It turns out not to have panned out. And in fact, this can actually be a case of where... Um, you can see some early experiential evidence from physicians that says, oh, we should look into this, and then it doesn't pan out. Like, yeah. that, that just happens, and sometimes it does. And so that can happen with ivermectin, too. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like, I mean, it seems like the trajectory ivermectin otherwise would have gone across is that it was like hydroxychloroquine. It showed some initial promise, they tested it, didn't find anything promising enough to continue, so they looked at other drugs. Maybe. Um, I mean, it it could, like, the thing is, again, I don't think we have all the evidence in yet, so it could be that uh it is somewhat effective, but we just don't know yet. And also, if it is very effective, it's unlikely to be as effective as has been stated in uh, some of these podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good qualification. So, we're we're still investigating, but certainly is not as promising as is touted by Brett, for example. Yeah. Almost I certainly. think probably the most promising things, which, you know, they would say that this is a big pharma thing because like monoclonal antibodies for treating COVID seem to be very promising. And then they would say, oh, but, you know, those are a new drug that needs to be like that are expensive and made by big pharma and whatever. And, you know, 
just because that seems to be effective and is being investigated. They would say that, you know, maybe they're suppressing the treatments that now they can use these monoclonal antibodies. But of course, if that were true, they would also suppress dexamethasone, but whatever. Yeah, they would have tried. If yeah. you could, uh, They would have I, tried at least, yeah. They, maybe they failed. But if they failed, then I don't know why they wouldn't fail with ivermectin when there seems to be a bigger push for ivermectin than dexamethasone. Well, if you do think that they tried and failed to stop, for example, uh, sorry, could you say the name again? Dexamethasone. Dexamethasone, okay. Uh, Then you should be able to find some evidence of that attempt, right? Mm -hmm. So you could look for lobbying or something else in the policy sphere, something that points to they were actively trying to suppress these other drugs. And mm-hmm. I think if you could find that, that'd be interesting to look at. But it seems like they don't bring that up at any time ever. So it's unlikely that it's out there because that would be great evidence. Yeah, that would have been really good evidence, actually. Like if they could just find like, oh, no, this is when they're trying to suppress a generic drug. And then this is how they failed because it got through or something. You're like, this is what we can do with ivermectin. But no, they don't talk about it. Um, evidence of I, I guess absence of evidence doesn't mean evidence of absence. But uh, it, <laughs> yes. I would expect them to be looking for that if it were a thing that had occurred. Um, yes, maybe they just didn't think of it. Absence of evidence is some evidence of absence. Not strong evidence, but it is some, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I think this can segue into uh, the most recent media part, unless there was something else you wanted to talk about. No, I mean, I guess there are some other things to talk about that they have, uh, but... I don't. I don't think it directly connects to this. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we we can continue talking afterward. But I just yeah, wanted yeah. to get to it finally. No, yeah. So the next thing is going to be the Sam Harris update, or were you thinking of something? Yeah, else? yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. So yeah. I can. I, I have a good segue here, which is oh. that. Um. So, basically, a lot of the uh, different justifications that we've been talking about these anti-establishment sentiments are that well you can imagine some incentives that the establishment has to preserve the status quo and just hold up these uh, pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. even if that seems to be uh unlikely given that uh there are some exceptions to that uh, but certainly those incentives are easy to imagine you can say these are these are big companies they have a lot of money they want to make more money they therefore they're incentivized to try and change policy such that they make even more money. Yeah, and and even beyond just uh, the pharmaceutical companies, the government has an incentive to maintain order and to like be uh, in control and uh, to figure out what the public should believe and shouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be in power. They want to yeah. use that power. Yeah, government wants stability and to remain in power. Pharmaceutical companies want money. There are general incentives like that. Yeah. Yeah. So when. Uh, Sam poses what Brett is doing as this act in just asking questions, right? He uses Mm -hmm. this phrase. So what does that mean to just ask questions? It's to say, well, we don't know that this is right, but what if this was right? What if this uh, unlikely scenario perhaps uh, was the truth? That would be really bad, right? Then we should do something about it. So that's how... That's how Sam presents uh, what Brett is doing. Or yeah, at least and, he, I think and that's specifically, how... he likens it to 9-11 conspiracies. Where it's like, <laughs> you know, what if, like, have you heard about the thermite hypothesis? I mean, I don't know, but thermite can melt steel and jet fuel can't, right? Like, I'm just asking. You know? <laughs> and yeah. that's kind of the analogy he uses. Exactly, right. Uh, that, that is the analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and 
when I heard that, um, I definitely thought that was wrong. I don't think that's what Red is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it tipped me off to maybe Sam has a much different understanding of the situation than I thought he did based on the previous episode. Mm. But there are some aspects in which I do kind of get that, which is like what we were just talking about where, well, we don't know exactly how uh, Pfizer is controlling the uh, Mm. institutions or the policies, but they could be. Because they have the incentive, they have the money, so they might be, and that would be an issue. Yeah. So I can see how you can see that as uh, just asking questions. Like we don't have an, uh, we don't have a justification, we don't have uh, evidence that this actually happened. But what if it did? I mean, uh, I think that is true in some other cases too, where, especially about the vaccine, where it's like, you know, what if this side effect happens down the line? What if it causes permanent female infertility? You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Well. So that's the thing is like with those other things where uh, they're talking about the side effects of vaccines or the effectiveness of ivermectin, I don't think they're just asking questions in that case. I think they mm. they think they have concrete evidence. That this is the truth that well, we we've done some investigation and this is what we think is likely to be true. I mean, I, OK, so I think that's true in some cases. For example, with ivermectin, I don't think they're just asking questions like, what if ivermectin is really effective? No, I think right. they're just saying ivermectin is really effective. Like ivermectin is a great prophylactic. Ivermectin is a great treatment. Um, and I, I don't think that that's just asking questions. I okay. think some of the stuff, um, some of the offhand amusing, like, you know, it's like, oh, the fact that I guess some of this is related to, you know, like that early interview with like Steve Kirsch and stuff where he mm-hmm. says, you know, all the, all the fire goes to your ovaries. You know, it's like this huge explosion of, of proteins in your ovaries. And then he's like, oh, I wonder what the effects of that could be. You know, I like, oh. all these things. you know, there, there is stuff like that. And I think mm-hmm. that's more in line with just, like, there's no evidence it causes infertility. Well, I guess actually maybe, maybe it isn't because, you know, Steve Karish did present that highly misleading evidence, um, which, you know, you probably isn't really evidence, but he did present something. So maybe it was uh-huh. less that, but I think, but I think that that was maybe closer to just asking questions versus like musing about these potential long-term side effects. Especially these long-term side effects where they say, you know, we don't know, but maybe. Maybe there are long-term side effects. Like, there's no evidence that there are, but maybe there are. Um, type thing. Yeah, that, that is true. They do make that... Uh, qu- they, they do just ask that question a lot of times. Like, but we I, don't know what the long-term side effects of this are, so they could be bad. Yeah, and I guess, but I guess to be clear, the ivermectin thing, I don't really think they're just asking questions at all about ivermectin. I think that they just are clear about their position. They say, you know, we have the evidence and it's effective. Like, that's their right. belief. And they just say it outright. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that, I agree. And totally. in some aspects of the vaccine, they also say that, but I feel like with the vaccine, there are some more times when they are, quote-unquote, just asking questions. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. I also I think, think Sam's episode okay. was more about their position on the vaccine than about their position on ivermectin. Since I don't think, like, I think Sam is like, okay, whatever, if people take ivermectin, the problem is if people choose not to take the vaccine. Uh, is, yeah. I think his position. Yeah, which totally makes sense. I, I'm kind of in that view yeah, as I well. Agree too. Like, I, it I doesn't think really... the two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> If if people want to take uh, an extra treatment for whatever reason, then sure. But yeah. if you're taking the vaccine as well, then no problem. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like it's it, it seems like it's unlikely to be very harmful to take a bunch of ivermectin. Uh, maybe it's expensive, but whatever. You know, people could just choose to take it. Like I, I think it's fine. People should be able to choose to take their own medicine or whatever. But um, 
if people are recommended or have the belief that it's a bad idea to take the vaccine, then I think that, that is uh, worrying. It's financially harmful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that is a good question, though, about like how much of their vaccine hesitancy is just asking questions. I can see the point that more of it certainly is than ivermectin because they have a lot of concerns that aren't based on, uh, well, we saw that this is what happens, so we think this is true. They, they're they like, well, we don't know exactly what happens, or there yeah. could be something that happens, and that's why we're worried. So I can see that as just asking questions, but there are some other things where they, they really do think that uh, there are these side effects from the vaccines and people die from them, so they're unsafe. True. I guess it's just like, you look at the various data, and that's not just asking questions. It's just claiming that this 12,000 is a lower bound of deaths. Like, yeah. you can say that's bad evidence, but it's not just asking questions. It's just saying, no, 12,000 people died for the vaccine. That's a lower bound. Many more people have died. That Lots of people have died. And that, that's just saying that you believe people have died and your position is therefore that it's dangerous. Um, right. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. So, so maybe, I guess maybe they do it sometimes, but I think, I think you're right that the general thing that they're doing mostly isn't, at least. Yeah. It, and it, I guess it maybe is... even when they do, I feel like it might be more idle musing when they already believe it's dangerous. So it's not like the point of it is just asking questions. It's like they just ask questions on the side, in addition to their beliefs that are determined by their perception of the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a view that like, okay, well, it has all these negative effects, so what could the other negative effects be? Let's be worried about that too. Mm -hmm. They do talk about the long-term effects of COVID and then also the long-term effects of the vaccines. So yeah. it, it, it makes some sense to, to have concerns and to be concerned about things you don't know mm -hmm. i think that what's meant by the sam's claim that they're doing this routine of just asking questions is that they already have a conclusion in mind and they're trying to sort of trick you into being more worried in the direction they want you to be than you mm -hmm. would otherwise be by pointing out very unlikely things that they know are unlikely but uh, are still possible so by That's pointing them true. out to you, they become yeah. more prominent in your mind than you think they're more likely. I think you're right. I think that is, I, yeah, when I think about it, I think that is the implication of Sam's podcast. And I think that's probably not what they're doing, at least not in any way intentionally. It might come across unintentionally that way. But yeah, I think so it might be a misunderstanding in the other direction now, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because I do think that you're right. They do just genuinely have the belief of these things and they are straightforward with it like they don't say you know what if the vaccines killed people what if they caused these problems what if they mm -hmm. were riskier than uh getting the disease for some people hmm, i don't know they just say you know look for some people the risk benefit analysis is take ivermectin don't take the vaccine they, they, like they just say it they don't they don't like yeah. say hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what if yes what if hmm, hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not how they talk usually. Yeah. They're very uh, confident. <laughs> yeah, they're very, which, I mean, has its own issues, but yeah. <laughs> yes, different issues. And in fact, yeah, actually, I mean, that reminds me of, um, I think, actually, so Eric Weinstein recently tweeted about it. Um, <laughs> did you oh, see his tweet? Yeah. Uh, was this in replying to Sam and Brett? Yeah, I think so. Because he okay. said, um, here's his tweet. He said, well, it has to come to this. My disagreement with at Brett Weinstein is how he has structured his points. 
trying to sort this out, I saw a much less clear picture. I don't want to say he's wrong on substance because I don't know, but the clarity he sees isn't clear to me as a non-expert. Um, and he said a bunch of other stuff in a thread with that too. But mm -hmm. I think that that um, is kind of a takeaway where it's like he sees a lot of clarity of what exactly the takeaway is that a lot of other people just don't see that clarity, I think. Uh -huh. Yeah, I liked, I, I liked that thread for the most part. Mm. Um, I think that one of the other points that uh, he made in that, uh, well, just to, to address your the point you just made, mm -hmm. right? So uh, it's not clear to him just by looking at uh, a, a whatever overview he's taken that it's like, okay, the evidence you're giving me is not so compelling that it's better than whatever the status quo is giving me. Yeah. That's that's not clear. Okay. Yeah. And then additionally, he says, uh, I'm believing the, the status quo establishment uh, narrative, you could say, uh, not because I think they're trustworthy, but because of whatever other reasons. There's a whole lot of things that are hinging on this uh, this judgment. Yeah. And I think, I don't remember if it was in this thread or elsewhere, where he made the point that um, it can be really hard to say, I don't trust the pharma companies. And yet the vaccine seems safe and helpful, right? Yeah. Like that, that seems like a hard point to get to since a lot of people will be like, well, like if I don't trust them, then I don't want to take their vaccine. Uh, but you have to be willing to say, no, the vaccine companies have bad incentives and I don't trust them. But the vaccine has good evidence behind it. Yeah. There's this, uh, it's a very loaded term in this context, trust, right? So yes. what does it mean yeah. to trust a vaccine company or a pharmaceutical company? It's that you, I don't know, you, you would go out and let them borrow some money and then they would pay <laughs> you back later. Yeah. I mean, I, I would kind of expect these big companies to probably pay back loans if they took them out. <laughs> okay. That's a good but, point. But I don't think I would trust them to, um, and not uh, to uh, so I I think this is a point that Brett made where if there were some a choice that they made where they could make one choice that uh, improved their bottom line and their shareholders value and one choice that improved public health but worsened their shareholders value I don't think I would trust them to do the thing that was good for public health if they could get away with it if they could get away with it which is the the good point uh, right. because in an, if it were totally unregulated I I wouldn't trust them to do that. Uh -huh. But in fact, we're not exactly in that situation because there's That's, a lot of uh, third-party verification that goes into their product. That's true. I mean, Brett would argue that the problem is because all that third-party verification has been captured, regulatory oh, capture. Yes. Uh, so he would say that effectively, despite the regulation, we have moved into what is essentially an unregulated market because the regulatory bodies have been captured by the companies themselves. Um, Though, as we talked about earlier, there seems to be evidence against that point. At uh -huh. least total regulatory capture as would kind of be necessary for this. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good summary of his view then, is that he views that the regulations actually aren't doing anything, actually. They're just mm -hmm. a facade of the uh, safety and efficacy mm -hmm. testing. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's what he uh, believes. Uh-huh. For lots of reasons, obviously we haven't given his entire justification, but that's no, yeah, I mean he's talked for hours and hours and hours. About <laughs> we couldn't even give his full justification if we wanted to. I think, 
But yeah. I mean, I think the just the gist of his justification is there's a lot of money behind these companies, and they have a big incentive to capture these regulatory bodies and make sure that they can make more money, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that is kind of the crux. So okay, we we've talked about the the just asking questions routine. Um, oh yeah. Then the other then, thing was that. What was the other thing? Oh, were you going to say something else? I, I thought you were going to say the second thing about uh, Sam or a second thing. Oh, um, so let's see. He makes a few criticisms of, well, I don't even know if they're criticisms exactly or just like notes about Brett uh, and his mm-hmm. podcast. So he, <laughs> he, he makes a point that he'd be fine if Brett just kept this to himself and had all the beliefs he currently believes but yeah. the problem he has with it is that he's talking about it in public on his podcast and using his podcast as a way to promote these alternative treatments and to be skeptical of vaccines. Yeah, he did say that. Yes. And so I think this is interesting because, or I don't know, were you going to say something else before we discuss this or? No. Oh, so then the thing here is I feel like this is analogous to, let's say someone smokes cigarettes and, you know, I think it's fine for someone to smoke cigarettes. Like that's just a thing people do. It's unhealthy, and I know that, but it's their choice to do it. Um, let's say someone smokes cigarettes and advocates for everyone to smoke cigarettes. They say that you should smoke cigarettes, and you should smoke cigarettes, and everyone should smoke cigarettes. Um, I think I would judge them much more harshly in that second case because they're advocating for people to do a bad thing, a thing that's bad for their health. The issue is, in this case, unlike the cigarette case, it's clear to Sam that advocating people not to get vaccinated because it's dangerous is a terrible thing for people's health. Mm -hmm. It's clear to Brett that it's a good idea to warn people about these potential dangers and tell them about the, um, the wonderful drug of ivermectin that can work much better. So I I don't think that this analogy necessarily works because Brett believes that he's telling people good advice, right? right yeah he's not intentionally misleading people he doesn't have really anything to gain from people taking ivermectin yeah i mean he has, uh, he has gain he has stuff to gain from uh people listening to his podcast <laughs> that's true yeah and I, I actually this was kind of interesting uh so i like i, I this we might circle back to this later about maybe a talk of uh, audience capture in, as in the opposition force to regulatory capture but oh. unless you want to talk about that now or um let's just finish up this point and then we yeah can let's do, do this next. first yeah i think we can do that later okay yeah I mean, okay. this is getting pretty long though actually i just noticed so oh yeah if you need to wrap it at any point just let me know oh i don't i mean i i have i can i can i have plenty of time it's fine okay i can probably go for you. another like hour at the most oh yeah that's fine with me okay cool uh right so what were we talking about uh sam harris uh, you said that he made a note about his podcast about him. He said it would be fine if it was in private, not good in public. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, right. This one. So I thought that was an interesting point. Um, I'm not totally sure what Brett thinks, or sorry, what Sam thinks Brett believes. I think that Sam believes that Brett believes that <laughs> ivermectin is truly effective and that the vaccines are actually dangerous. Uh, yeah. So. In that case, it seems a little weird for him to make that point. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't make it's like it makes sense from Sam's perspective. Obviously, he just doesn't want people to talk about it if it's wrong. 
but it, it doesn't make sense that he would think that's the right decision for Brad to make. I wonder if this is a failure of what the psychological term mind reading, where you can take someone else's perspective and see things from their point of view. <laughs> like, I, no, but I mean like the actual, not like how uh, certain people use it as like a derogatory, like you can't do that. But like in the actual term where people do do it, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, the mind reading is like when you um, understand what he would believe in his position. Uh, and uh-huh. it's like, you know, it's like from Brett's position, Sam's critique makes no sense at all. He's like, you shouldn't advocate for this in public. He's like, what do you mean? I'm advocating for a good thing. I should definitely do that in public. Uh, right, but from Sam's exactly. position, he's advocating for a bad thing. Therefore, he should not do it in public. But it doesn't make any sense saying it to Brett. So this almost like sounds like it's just a podcast to his audience to say he thinks Brett is not a good person to listen to. Not right. uh, not one to Brett or people who believe Brett because they would just be like, oh, this is a terrible argument. <laughs> there might even be a bit more of a uh, severe uh, implication, which is that if Brett has a belief that is very against the mainstream, then he should keep it to himself. So I think this is something that comes up a little bit later, right? Oh, or, or is this the same point that you were thinking? Because I thought that there was another point where he said that he shouldn't talk about health. Yeah, actually, no, I guess that actually is still this point, right? I, I, I don't yeah. know. I don't have a fine line. Whatever. Between. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but but yeah, I think you're right. Because there was a certain thing where he says, like, oh, if he has, like, a position that's very different from the mainstream that is harmful to people, he should not say it. Which well, is even equally if nonsensical from Brett's perspective in this case, right? Um, well, I think this one could be made sensical from Brett's perspective, but is that's what I mean by more severe is that, mm. so if you take out the harmful part, right, it's not that it's definitely harmful, it's that it could be potentially harmful. Like, Brett certainly acknowledges that if ivermectin is not as effective as he thinks it is, that'd be really mm. bad, because he just promoted sure. a lot of people to endanger themselves. Yeah, that's true. So he'd agree with that. So basically what Sam would say is like, well, if there's a chance of that and the mainstream position is not in accordance with what you believe, then you should just uh, submit to the mainstream position. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a good argument, though. <laughs> but but I, I guess I can see like where this comes from, but I don't think it's a good argument. Uh, uh-huh. Because there are lots of cases where, for example, someone has a belief that's against the mainstream with regards to public health or something, and then that allows some sort of innovation that dramatically improves public health, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, like germ theory or something like that. It's like, you know, yeah. people know diseases come from bad odors and a imbalance of your, your bodily fluids, right? But actually, they don't know that. Um, <laughs> telling people that germs are what cause disease is dangerous because then they'll just let their their ichor and their bile fall out of balance. Um, but in fact, that's not the problem. The problem is that they don't know the germs are the danger, right? Like if the mainstream is wrong, like it makes sense to have people advocating against this. And I think it's useful in general. Uh, the, the idea is just that you would need to argue against the heterodox ideas that are bad. And, you know, uh, if you can't argue against them, then maybe they're good and should be accepted. <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> So, yeah, I think the, the interesting question is whether or not it's a good argument. And, right, so you're saying this is not a good argument because it's possible that the anti-mainstream position is true. Mm-hmm. But is it probable that it's true? 
like sure the germ theory of disease turned out to be true but there were all a lot of other alternative theories right yeah yeah there's quite a bit of alternative theories yeah (laughs) so if i told you one and you didn't know that it was going to turn out to be the correct one then would you still say the same thing uh no I, i would say you know if i've never heard of a theory and you say it then i probably wouldn't believe it but then the issue there isn't that you said it it's that um because so my belief would be let's say for example someone proposed the theory of homeopathy where Uh you know you have water that's ultra diluted with these substances and the water has memory and it cures all these diseases it's just like it's nonsense scientifically right and it doesn't do anything better than placebo but uh and sure it turns out if someone puts that forward then people do that instead of taking cancer therapy that's a bad thing but like the problem with that isn't that they're putting forward an idea that hasn't been like considered before. The problem with that is that the argument and the data behind it are bad, right? Right, right. So, so for example, if Brett is doing this argument like ivermectin is good, vaccines are bad, or super simplified version, whatever. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if he believes he has good data to back that up, then he should say it. Right. Even if before looking at any data, you can guess that any new medical theory will probably be wrong if it comes from someone outside the mainstream. You can say, sure, that's probably true. But I think that even then, if someone comes with good data and evidence to support their theory or their hypothesis, then they should bring it forward and people should take it seriously. And I think people should do the same with his vaccine and ivermectin claims. Then the issue is just that they aren't backed up by the evidence, right? But it shouldn't be that he shouldn't say it in the first place. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so the qualification here is that it's not that you shouldn't have certain opinions in public. Mm -hmm. It's that you shouldn't have certain opinions without providing enough good evidence. Exactly. Yes, yeah. Uh That's what I would say. That certainly seems more reasonable to me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly if Sam was self-conscious of how he would come off <laughs> saying <laughs> the sort of yeah. <laughs> position he was, he was taking, uh, especially compared to, you know, like positions he's taken in the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, funnily enough, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely more sympathetic to that. I think that, um, the, the thing that is difficult uh, is that, well, on the one hand, it's difficult to judge the quality of data from an outside perspective. Like, so Brett thinks yeah. he has really good data, but uh, other people really disagree. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, from Brett's perspective, obviously, it makes sense. But yeah. from an outside perspective, it might be difficult for Brett to com- co- convince them that he has good data. And this is what I mean when it boils down to the same issue as before, where from Brett's, perfe- from Brett's perspective, it makes perfect sense to advocate for this because yeah. he believes that he has good data to back it up. And then Sam looks at it and says, there's bad data. You shouldn't talk about it because there's bad data. And Brett says, what do you mean? There's good data. <laughs> yeah. So it's an impossible argument because they just are starting from different premises. They, they need to argue about the data. They shouldn't be arguing exactly. about anything else. And that's why I think this isn't a good argument anyway assuming the person believes that they have good reason for their belief yeah i think that's kind of what uh sam thought he was doing in the tobal episode he was like okay 
We're going to just mm-hmm. look at the data and we're going to argue about this and show that like definitively vaccines are safe enough to take. Yeah, I think that was a lot closer to that than uh, than his second episode, at least. Yeah. And I think they did a reasonable job on that. And I think that mm-hmm. Brett and Heather did a pretty unreasonable job responding to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the second episode, Sam seems to forget <laughs> like what the point of the first one was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think because the second one, I wonder, hmm, I kind of wonder if the first episode had, so in the second episode, he says that a problem with the first episode is the intended audience was anti-vaxxers and he was trying to convince them. I wonder if the second episode, the intended audience is his own audience and he wants to convince (laughs) them to just not listen to Brett. Like, just don't listen to him. Like, just, just, he's a bad source. Don't listen to him. Because, sure, this is not like they convince people who believe that he has good evidence, but it might warn you away from him if you don't already believe him. Not necessarily for logical reasons, but just kind of like to make you feel like, oh, he's kind of like not a good person to listen to in this case. Um, and uh, I wonder if that's actually more of the intent. Though that, <laughs> it, kind of, it sounds kind of insidious when I say it like that, though. And I'm not sure. Like, he might, he, maybe he's not doing that. But if that were the effect, it would be much more effective because... If he's trying to convince people who actually believe that, you know, Brett and Heather have the data they think they have and that it's as supported and as certain as they think it is, then this is not going to convince them, in my opinion. (laughs) But it might convince people who aren't sure to not listen to them. So he the way that Sam does his episodes is that some of them are public and some of them are subscription only, right? Yeah. And I think that the one that he interviewed Topol on was public. I think he did make it public because it was one of the like quote unquote emergency podcasts or something. Oh yes, the yeah. the public service announcements. Yeah, oh public that's what it was. Yeah, public service <laughs> announcements. Yeah. But I think that the um the one after that, his sort of uh what do you call it? Addendum. Q&A. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Q&A as well. Uh that was not public. That was subscription only. Is that right? I didn't even notice that. That's interesting. I yeah I get the subscription feed so I don't see the yeah difference. I just do the thing where you put in your email and you get it for free <laughs> <laughs> yes it's um, very convenient yeah but I mean I'm, I I appreciate that he does that but <laughs> yes I yeah do so that that is interesting though that it's only like his more hardcore audience probably that listens to it then um, so that supports what you're kind of saying and I don't right it's not insidious it's just that he's a person he has feelings he's going to express them so he expressed them in the right episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> not the one yeah, that was aimed true. particularly for his uh, ex- uh beyond his audience yeah I, like I, I think that if he had made this argument in the first episode it would have just been <laughs> it would have been even worse than it was and I think <laughs> If you assume that this episode has the same target audience as the first episode, it's equally bad. But I'm not sure we should make that assumption then. Yeah, I think I was making that assumption, but I, now I see that's probably not true. It's so funny, too, because he starts it off by saying, like, yeah, one of the problems was that we were too hard on and, like, abrasive for whatever the word is for uh, against the, va- yeah. the vaccine-hesitant people. And I have to say, yeah, guilty is charged. And then goes yeah. on to, like, do exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, I mean, I think actually what he said, though, was, you know, I was accused by of being too harsh on them. Uh, oh, me and, yes. and me and especially Eric were too harsh on them. And he's like, yeah, that was true. And then he said, I don't even think if it's, I don't even know if it's a good idea to be not harsh on them. Maybe they deserve the harshness or something like that. I, not those exact words, but it was something mm-hmm. to that effect. 
which okay. would be ridiculous if you were telling it to those people, right? You're like, maybe I should just be harsher on you because you're so dumb. I mean, he, like he didn't say that specifically, but yeah. you know, that's kind of the feeling you would get from that statement. Whereas, yeah. um, in this case, he was kind of like, you know, maybe like I was too hard. I was harsh. Maybe that I should just be harsh. Like maybe, maybe I shouldn't make, treat it like it's like, cause I think one of the points of this episode was I shouldn't treat it like it's an equal argument. Like, don't pretend that there's an equal amount of evidence behind this and treat it like an equal debate partner. It, it's like when you have the climate change argument. It's like, there, there's, I, I don't know if you saw, there's just some skit or something where it's like, oh, they have on TV one climate change skeptic and one uh, climate scientist who believes in climate change. And then it's like representative of the actual thing. They have 99 climate scientists and one climate <laughs> skeptic or something. And then it's, he's, maybe he's making the same point here where it's like, you know, you just shouldn't treat it as an equal argument. Um, which again is not a way to convince people generally who already have made up their mind, sure. but <laughs> he, he might be making that point in general. And he did say he doesn't want to have a debate with him on a podcast because he doesn't want to essentially platform that point of view and make it seem reasonable. Like he wouldn't have a nine 11 denier on the podcast. So maybe now the more that I think about it, the more I think that this is probably just not directed towards people who agree with Brett strongly. Uh, it, it's at, it's probably directed towards people who either already agree with Sam or aren't sure in order to like prevent them from coming to the conclusion that these are both reasonable perspectives or something in, in Sam's mind. It's, that's the goal. Maybe. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. I do remember these things that he said, and I think that is probably right. I think we can come to that conclusion that this was not aimed at them for sure. Yeah. <laughs> or if yeah. it was totally missed the mark. Yeah. If all of his intentions. If it was aimed at them, I'd be like, oh, wow, he really went downhill in his rhetoric, rhetorical ability. You know? <laughs> yeah. Something went wrong. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Okay. So I I don't remember any other particular uh, criticisms. I think he probably just says, like, I've said all I'm going to say about this. And... Yeah. I think he. I think he said, at least he said everything he was going to say in public. He didn't hmm. say he was going to talk to him in private, but he didn't say he wasn't going to he just said that he wasn't going to like make a platform this more he didn't say platform but essentially that's what it is like he doesn't want to platform the anti-vaccine audience right or anti-vaccine position yeah i i I was kind of curious about that i i don't see it as that bad i don't think it would have been that bad if he did if he went on a podcast with brett i think if he went on brett's podcast it would have been fine i think if he went, if Brett was on his podcast and advocated the anti-vaccine position, then I think that it probably would have had the negative effect that Sam was expecting. The negative effect being that people see it as like a equal possible explanation for exactly, COVID. yeah. That it, uh-huh. that it makes it seem like oh, okay, well maybe maybe that is true. Maybe like he did bring up some things that Sam like Sam didn't know about X thing in this place. Like maybe maybe he is right. Maybe it is actually dangerous, and I shouldn't get vaccinated whatever um or you know i should tell other people not to get vaccinated because maybe it is dangerous um Uh i don't know uh but but i think that if he told if he was on brett's audience and he told that then and he talked about it i don't think or he was sorry if he was on uh if he was on dark horse with brett and heather i don't think that it would uh lead to the same outcome because it would mainly be people who were more skeptical of vaccines and more in favor of ivermectin listening to him and he's more likely to convince people than uh, <laughs> like convince other... people who are on the fence. And I guess the thing is, he, it wouldn't even be a worry that people already got vaccinated because they can't unvaccinate themselves. It's really people on the fence that you would be mm-hmm. worried about who are like, 
I don't know. I've kind of been holding out, but maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. So, yeah, those are the people that are left. Yeah. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I guess it is tricky because if like, obviously Sam is not an expert, so he's yeah. not going to be able to have a rebuttal to things that, uh, in retrospect are obviously false statements. This is what he said. Perhaps. You can't bring, you can't address every argument in real time. You know, wait, if they yeah. bring up the, it's like, Oh, but thermite burns at exactly this temperature. You're like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know about the chemical properties of thermite or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, sure it does, but what does that have to do with this? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, like that's different even. Cause then you're making an argument about the relevance. Like it's like, Oh, if they say, Oh, but then this and this, and then the CIA was involved in this thing. And you're like, was the CIA involved in this thing? I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Is it fake? <laughs> is it made up? Is it real? Is it like, I don't, I don't know. And you just can't address it real time um, unless you like are super well-versed in the arguments that mm-hmm. are made. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of a funny situation though, because it's totally fine for him to have Eric Topol on and be convinced that vaccines are safe. Yeah. So it's only okay if it goes in one direction, not the other. <laughs> Well, okay. So here's the thing, though. I think that that's different because, or I mean, different from something like YouTube, where YouTube like makes a decision and bans everything else. Because in this mm-hmm. case, Sam essentially looked at the evidence available, made his like figured out what his position was. He believes vaccines are safe and effective, right? Right. Uh, then he doesn't. Then he wants to convince people to share his point, and the best rhetorical way to do that is to get an expert who like believes his point and can convince people not to convince people to disagree with him. Right. Um, so like, it, it, I, I don't think that he came in like not having an idea. He came in already agreeing with Eric Topol. And the point of that podcast was to convince people to agree with his current position. Right. It, it wasn't uh, that Eric Topol uh, convinced Sam. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that is a better way of saying it. Right. It was a rhetorical strategy. Yeah. And I, I think that's what it was. Like he brought Eric Topol on because he's an expert that could help convince his audience. He didn't bring him on because he's like, you know, I have questions about vaccines. How do they work? Like whatever. He, he brought him on because he's like, you know, I already have a position. I want you to help me convince my audience that this position is correct. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty explicitly what the goal is from my perspective. It's the same thing. I mean, Brett did with like, Robert Malone and Steve Kish. Like, if <laughs> right. he questioned their perspective, he would have questioned some of the claims they made. But he already agreed with them coming in. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Or maybe he learned some new things during the Maybe episode. he did. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe quote unquote learned some things. Uh, maybe he learned some things. Maybe quote unquote learned some things. But I mean, some things I think maybe he did learn, like the difficulty of creating a whole new model animal, which he was proposing with like ferrets or something. Um, as opposed to mice and Robert Malone was like, no, no, the mice are pretty good. They should just like use those. So they're way easier. And then, uh, (laughs) Brett is like, I don't know, maybe they should do these, um, ferrets or something. Uh, (laughs) and I mean, I know personally from people who I've worked with creating a new model organism is a crazy amount of work, uh, that I don't know if Brett really thought that was a feasible idea, but I'm, skeptical that he was from anyway but so maybe he learned that that was not a good idea because he didn't bring it up again after that that in any of the podcasts i heard um uh-huh. huh. but, yeah. Yeah, that is a interesting point it probably wouldn't be notable to most people but i remember being <laughs> like what he's just proposing they're creating a new model organism like all that characterization all that work like what <laughs> 
Yeah, but someone that doesn't do virology stuff, it's just like, well, yeah, of course, make a new model. Yeah. I like ferns. It's like, yeah, just do it. Just do the experiments in this animal instead. It's like, yeah, no, that's not how it works. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> hmm, okay. yeah. Was there anything well, else in Sam's podcast you think was notable? Um, overall, I I didn't really like his take. I think that mm-hmm. he seemed to think that either Brett was acting in bad faith or he was not acting in bad faith, but also was just like very mistaken about his own goals. Yeah. Because <laughs> like the criticisms true. didn't seem consistent with yeah, he what said Brett's something- intentions were. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that because I guess the thing is, it almost sounded like he was talking to Brett, but obviously, if Brett was listening, he'd be like, "What your podcast didn't doesn't convince me of anything. It's like nonsense, right?" Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, like the Topol episode. How, what am I supposed to take away from this? <laughs> <laughs> the Topol episode, I think, was the right format, but mm-hmm. uh, after that, yeah, Sam's responses were responses to Brett essentially. Like Brett was responding to the episode. And then Sam was like, "Okay, I don't, I don't care what you said. <laughs> yeah, I, you're just too far gone at this point." Yeah, I guess it reminds me. So I guess this is maybe this moving on from the Sam Harris podcast, but uh-huh. to the uh, Yuri Dagan interview on oh, Rebel Wisdom. Yes. Um, so speaking of like the correct format, I think that this was like the correct format in that Yuri was bringing just a lot of direct evidence that directly contradicted claims that were made by brett or someone else on the dark horse podcast and just said no this is untrue no this is untrue no like this is and whatever stuff like that and i think that's exactly what can convince some people but on the other hand i'm also pretty sure it's completely wrong in that his attitude was super abrasive (laughs) (laughs) like like talking about like oh maybe this san harris podcast would put people off if they already agree with that (laughs) like I'm pretty sure Brett would just be insulted listening to Yuri's podcast. Like, oh, like, I'm, I, I think, think he, he was. was. Yeah, because he made a tweet about it. What, what did the tweet say? It's something like, how could you, like, have this person on? Like, oh, like do you right. need some help, David, or something? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, do you need some help? This is the opposite of what you usually stand for. Yeah, um, this is against all of your values. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he said that, which is interesting, because I'm pretty sure of all the people trying to give a balanced view and trying to tread the tightrope i think david from rebel wisdom is doing it very carefully from what i listen to and he's like he has his opinion which happens to be that vaccines are safe and effective and ivermectin is uncertain um but he's very careful and making sure he presents various sides and he's not unfair and he's trying to like give evidence and like bring up points very gently to people who disagree with him and stuff like that like i think of anyone who's performing very well but um but anyway but yuri on the other hand is probably right in a lot of his points but um very aggressive about it like very insulting calling brett you know immoral like promoting quack science you know all these things that i mean if i were brett i would be insulted i'd be like what is he talking about like this guy like what (laughs) um and yeah but he but i mean he just made a lot of good factual points i think actually and Mm -hmm. like compared to the quillette article which i thought was okay like i thought i brought up some good points but it wasn't like amazing or anything but i think that his video like you know brought up a lot more specific points just about things that were brought up in the podcast that were just wrong 
right? <laughs> yeah, it was much more specific and much more comprehensive. <laughs> yeah. And I'd kind of like to see um, Brett and Heather respond to that. I feel like they won't, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd like to see that. Uh, it's unfortunate since, I guess we didn't mention it earlier, but Yuri Dagan was actually on Brett's podcast uh, a couple months ago, I think. Oh, he because, was? Yeah, because Yuri was one of the people that was also an early proponent of the lab leak hypothesis. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that he was, at, I don't think he's as certain because even in this episode, he said, you know, oh, you know, like we don't know for sure. Like, you know, the, it's, it's, still, it's plausible, but, you know, who knows? But it's a good idea to like keep it in mind um, as like a situation. And he brought a lot of evidence about why he thought it was likely and everything like that. Uh, and so Brett had him on his podcast and they mm-hmm. talked and, you know, Brett said that he thought that he did good work and everything. Um, then he thought, then I, I think Brett said something like he was surprised at how sloppy he was with all these criticisms of him when he used to do good work with the lab leak hypothesis. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so Yuri, if, if, for example, you're someone who believes that uh, it's only the orthodox people who fit in with the mainstream who are defending vaccines and skeptical of ivermectin yuri is someone who is very willing to go against the mainstream just earlier but he is very skeptical of ivermectin and very in favor of vaccination yeah so it's hard to square with uh brett's previous take on his work yeah um i mean this is the opposite of something that sam said in his first episode where he's like how can these reasonable doctors suddenly have these terrible positions and that like with regards to vaccination and everything and Brett's mm-hmm. response was, you know, maybe they don't have bad positions. Maybe they're actually right. You know, Sam just isn't realizing that these doctors are right about uh, vaccination being dangerous or something. Uh-huh. And, and But I don't think Brett also then does the same thing about how can so many doctors be wrong about <laughs> vaccination from his perspective, right? Like, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think he has an accurate, or I don't think, he, I, I mean, he didn't even talk about it, I guess. He didn't say any way where he would reconcile how are all these good medical professionals and scientists actually believing that vaccination is safe and effective and that um, ivermectin is uncertain, you know, or like uh, how, how does he reconcile all the researchers who believe that? Uh, well, right. I, I don't know how he does because he never mentions it, but yeah, the question is how come only so few doctors and professionals exactly. think that ivermectin is effective? Yeah, why is it that when there's multiple meta-analyses, only Tess Lowry's is so strongly in favor of ivermectin and skeptical of vaccines? And then why yeah. is that the only one he uses? But <laughs> but that's another question, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, it seems like the sort of thing that would be an obvious tip. Like I am using exactly one meta analysis that seems to have the most issues with it. Yeah. Or I guess I shouldn't say it because I don't well, know about the other yeah, ones. Yeah, I mean, but... I would say that from outside organizations evaluating it, it seems to have the most issues. But I'm sure that Brett and Heather would contend that and say, no, no, it doesn't have those issues. It's fine. Though I haven't heard them actually address the specific issues with it. So I don't know if they do. They seem right. to just dismiss the criticism. But They use some tool that's only used for people that uh, are skimming the paper for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, these criticisms aren't valid. And they don't address the criticisms. And so- anyway, we talked about that earlier. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was my take on Sam's response. Uh I think it's fine that he doesn't want to deal with this situation anymore. He's like, this is basically what he usually does in these sorts of situations. He does the podcast, he gives his thoughts, and then he leaves it. And then yeah. he goes and talks about it. He did that things. with like 
Black Lives Matter, he did it with a variety of other topics, I think, too, that he just, like, has a PSA about it, and it's like, okay, like, that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, I uh, I think that's fine. Yeah. I think that he this one was... for content, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely not. Um, I think that this one felt, like, a little abrupt at the end, because Brett obviously was responding and, like, trying to have a back and forth to some extent. Hmm. Uh, although I don't think Brett was very receptive to the criticisms, but I guess Sam was not interested in like taking advantage of the situation. Like Brett is someone that is willing to listen to him. So you you could talk to him. That is, well, at least publicly. Um, And I kind of suspect not privately either, but I don't know. Yeah. We don't know these people, but yeah. Yeah. I think that, because I mean, of the people that could probably talk to Brett and, convince him sam is probably among them <laughs> and and brett kind of says that when he responds he's like look i respect sam a lot i was really worried when i saw he was critical of me like i was thinking oh no did i do something really wrong because he's critical and then he's like no there's no problems uh, <laughs> right but yeah yeah what was it um uh, i i was gonna say something and i forgot what it was yeah <laughs> That's what happens after a three-hour podcast, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, this has been pretty long. <laughs> um, did you have something you wanted to talk about next? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess um, another thing is... So, one other issue I have is the kind of motivated skepticism that I think is displayed, especially by um, Brett's side. Mm. Uh, so, this is something where Brett is quite skeptical of some things and less skeptical of other things. For example, um, he's quite skeptical of the data put forward by pharmaceutical companies that the vaccines are safe. Uh, he is very unskeptical of the data provided by Steve Kirsch that the vaccines cause infertility um, or miscarriages or whatever. Like, he doesn't really challenge it. And that isn't necessarily saying any specific thing about those two things in their relationship to him. It's just showing, like, how much does he look into it and how much is he skeptical? Like he really looks for issues with the pharmaceutical data that shows vaccines are safe. He really does not look for issues with data showing they're not safe. Right. Uh, And in fact, he even does that with the same source. So notably uh, with Pfizer, he's very skeptical that the Pfizer vaccines are as safe as they're claimed. Right. Uh, And Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't trust the corporation Pfizer. He's very clear about that. Doesn't trust it on a recent episode though. Uh, Heather brought up that Pfizer had recently been doing some studies and showed that uh, perhaps you need a booster shot after six months. And they're like, okay, look, so this is good evidence that, in fact, natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity, right? Because natural immunity, here's some studies that show it might be long-lasting. And, you know, Pfizer is saying maybe you need a booster shot after six months or something. Um, And they were very not skeptical of that. And I got the impression they didn't even, like, look that hard at the paper or anything like that that implied that you might need booster shots. They just accepted that. Mm-hmm. And that implies to me, even when the source is coming from Pfizer, they are very accepting of information that shows vaccines aren't that great and very skeptical of information that shows vaccines are great, right? Am I reading that situation correctly, you think? Yeah, so when you're saying skeptical, you're saying that they take a look at the source and like, okay, it came from this source. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to really scrutinize the details of this source uh, of this. uh, I mean, I don't even think it's from the source. I think it's from the conclusion. 
I think if it's something that well, shows vaccines are safe, they'll be like, okay, I'm going to really take a look at this and see who are they looking at, what's the time frame, whatever stuff, how many people are in this study. If it's a study that shows, oh, maybe there are issues with vaccines, they'll be like, oh, look, see, so here's another study that shows issues with vaccines. Oh, but I, well, what I mean is that uh, their purported justification for being so skeptical is that oh, these companies sure. have an incentive to blah, 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 right? Sure, so yeah. I'm going to like make sure that we're uh, checking everything in close detail. Yeah, because they, they have an incentive to yeah, sure. trick us, right? But then when they happen to say something that aligns with what they want to support, then they're like, oh, well, they're probably telling the truth, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because, and in fact, Pfizer has incentive to want people to take booster shots, as we kind of joked about earlier. It's like, you know, <laughs> if more people take more Pfizer shots, Pfizer makes more money. Like, and yet they're not skeptical of the fact that Pfizer recommended booster shots. And in fact, there are other scientists who were skeptical of that, who said maybe Pfizer is recommending this too early before there's good evidence that is necessary. Uh, maybe like Pfizer is saying, oh, we should do this before there's evidence in that says it's a good idea. Um, but yet, among the people you would expect to be skeptical of pharmaceutical company claims, Brett and Heather were not skeptical of this claim, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So they use they should use the same reasons to be skeptical from before, but for some reason they're deciding not to apply those reasons here. Yeah. And if they are skeptical, they certainly didn't mention it on their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't mention any like deep evaluation or like skepticism about it. They're just like, look, if Pfizer is saying this, it seems, you know, like maybe you'll need a booster shot after six months for the shot. Um <laughs> Yeah, and you know, whatever. Maybe they do some stuff off camera that they are skeptical there. But mm -hmm. the point is that they're presenting this to their audience, so yeah. it's sort of an official record of what their uh, public position is. Yeah, and certainly on record, they are very skeptical of things that are pro-vaccine and less skeptical of things that are anti-vaccine. Yeah, and there's a trend can, for sure. Yeah, I think you can also see this in the ivermectin studies where. They seem to have a strong, like they were very accepting of some of these studies that when people took a look at were pretty bad studies, right? Like, um, like the El Ghazar study, the um, the one Argentinian study with the Carrageenan ivermectin. Um, like these are studies that have questionable properties, but yet uh, at least Brett seems to use them as very strong evidence. And it's just like, you know, these seem like good evidence that uh, ivermectin is effective, nearly 100%. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Whereas there are also studies that show ivermectin is not effective, and they don't seem to consider those as equally. Um, right, similarly yeah. with the meta-analyses, like Tess Lowry's meta-analysis, meta by some measures at least, is... The, has the most issues of the meta-analyses that are, have been put out so far. And yet, that's the only one that they look at, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it seems like it's especially weird because, sure, okay, uh, maybe it has some issues, maybe there's some justifications they mm -hmm. have in mind for why those issues are actually not that big of an issue. Yeah. But they should have you would think they would at least take into account also the other meta-analyses, right? So, like, yeah. just because you're taking into account that one doesn't mean you should ignore all the other ones. Yeah. So. And I think that it's, <laughs> it's something where, 
I suspect that they would look very closely at those meta-analyses and try and find issues with them and say, oh, they didn't include this. Oh, they're including studies that had different protocols and some of them weren't effective and stuff like that and would be very skeptical of their negative findings. But with Tess Lowry's, they're just like, yeah, I mean, look, she did a meta-analysis. Like, she's an expert. You know, it's good. Yeah, I mean, in that case, it would be particularly easy to compare and say, like, well, you said that they did the different uh, protocols here, and that was an issue, but in the this analysis that you like, you didn't care about that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I'm not. Yeah, but anyway, so I think overall, it's an issue with the motivated skepticism where they kind of are more skeptical of arguments going from one side than the other side, mm-hmm. and I think that that can make them seem more certain in their argument because then they don't find issues with some of them and do find issues with others, but it's just because they're only looking at one side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's such an easy thing to fall into, right? Because yeah. uh, they've sort of built a reputation on this position of promoting ivermectin and a lot of their audience yeah. is interested in it and they're interested in it. I think they're taking ivermectin, right? They are. Actually, I think Brett has... I think he took ivermectin on a video or something as like a show... And oh, then really? he is not vaccinated, he said. He, even in the, so in the podcast with Dr. Malone and Steve Kirsch, they were both vaccinated and he wasn't. Uh, and he was uh-huh. taking prophylactic ivermectin. Right, okay. Yeah. The recommended dose for pro- prophylactic ivermectin is like the higher one, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't know exactly what dose he's taking, but he's cert- he certainly is taking what he believes to be an effective dose at prophylaxis for COVID um, of ivermectin. Uh-huh. instead okay. of getting vaccinated so he's certainly very interested in this and kind of has some uh stake in it being true yeah. so it makes sense that he would want to you know confirm that that is indeed the case by looking for evidence of that yeah but the problem is right in confirming it you're spending the time confirming it rather than disconfirming it yeah that's confirmation bias i guess you're, you're looking for things that confirm it you're like look i found this study that shows it's effective and you didn't find the study that shows it's not effective. <laughs> right. And they only have so much time to look for studies. So sure. Okay. There's going to mm-hmm. be some bias, but the problem is when it becomes so prevalent that it leads them to like extremely strong conclusions that are probably not justified. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That definitely seems to be what's happening here. Yeah, I, I think so. And Actually, it's interesting. That kind of reminds me of something I kind of brought up earlier, which is the audience capture. Because like you were saying, they stake, they kind of stake the reputation on ivermectin being effective and vaccines being dangerous at this point. Um, yeah. And this is something that Eric Weinstein brought up in an interview he had recently oh, yes. where he was like, oh, you know, there are incentives on both sides. Like on the mainstream side, there are incentives for a certain thing. On the hetero, on the like alternative media side, there are also incentives to do certain things, um, and mm-hmm. this was also brought up by uh, David at Rebel Wisdom, where he said, you know, there are these incentives, like you know, you have these arguments in the mainstream where there's only one side being presented, but you have the same thing in the alternative media where there's only one side being presented, and he kind of made it his goal to present both sides, um, but. Uh, it seems to me that, okay, so here's an interesting fact, for example. Uh, I, I think one time I shared with you the Graftrion data for uh, Brett Weinstein uh, or the Dark Horse Pocket or something like that recently. Yes, right? yes. And I thought it was kind of shocking because essentially what you can see is, okay, it like has been pretty much stable for like about a year or something. And then there's his vaccine podcast. 
And then it skyrockets upwards. <laughs> like they're making double the money they were before. Um, and sure, that doesn't give him a financial stake in Ivermectin being sold, but it really gives him like a reputational stake in being right about this thing or even just talking about this thing that seems to make him a lot of money. And the thing is, I, I wouldn't say that he's doing it for cynical reasons. Like I, I wouldn't imply that. I think he does believe it. But it is an incentive in that direction. And I think, especially for people other than him, who, you know, are maybe less good faith, but follow him and also post stuff on alternative media places and uh -huh. uh, don't care so much about what might be true, um, they would just be like, you know what, it makes me more money. You know, I'm just going to show the side that makes me more money. And I think we've kind of seen audience capture with some people before, like, uh, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure this happened, but I think kind of Dave Rubin, for example, where uh -huh. he's yeah. essentially moved to being very, very far right now from being kind of centrist to begin with as his audience moved further and further right. And he kind of went along with them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I would agree with that. Broadly. Yeah. And I think that part of that is the incentive structures of he has an independent show and he needs to make money and he needs to keep his business going. And what does the audience like to see? Well, they like to see the really conservative people. They like to see the people that say that Barack Obama was literally a communist. They like to see uh, like the people who, I don't know who it was, but whoever convinced him that China was cloning people or something like that. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Like I, I still can't even believe that he said that, but you know, he did. Um, <laughs> but you know, like they like seeing that sort of stuff and it just pushes him in a certain way. And I think that saying that there's only incentives on the mainstream side in a, in a certain direction ignores the fact that there's huge incentives on the alternative side in favor of the alternative treatments, right? Because that's what people want to see. That's what they want to hear. They want to do the thing that's against the YouTube regulations. So if you can give them something that sounds like it's good, they're going to want to watch it and you can make a lot of money. Um, but again, I don't think Brett is necessarily doing it for bad faith reasons. It's just, it is a pressure that exists. Yeah. And if he's going to, you know, bring up the malincentives that pharmaceutical companies and others have, he should sure. at least be willing to entertain that their malincentives uh, that could apply to him as well. True, yeah. Because even if there aren't malincentive, like maybe there's not a billion dollars at stake invested in ivermectin. I mean, there probably is because ivermectin, whoever makes it, like the price has skyrocketed. Yeah, people make money. But, uh -huh. um, like, yeah, well, that's, a, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a whole other point, though. But I mean, like right. on, on his side, you know, like no one's going to give him a billion dollars, but, you know, his income doubled when he started becoming skeptical of vaccines and interested in ivermectin at least his patreon um income which i guess is a substantial part of his income uh and both his and heather's patreons had a similar graph so there's quite a bit of incentive there um they have separate patreons i think so uh oh, maybe i misremember oh. but i think they both have separate patreons i'm not sure why because they do the same podcast but i think they do Interesting. Just to see who people like more. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, Brett is more well-known as a public figure, so I think his makes more, but pretty sure mm -hmm. she also makes it. I don't know, but I don't know why they have separations, but I think they do. <laughs> um, anyway, not yeah. the most important aspect of this. Yeah. But the but, fact uh, is, they, as a, as a couple, make a uh, lot more money after they talk about these vaccines, and yeah, like, 
again, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing it in bad faith. I don't think they are. Yeah. But if you're talking about incentives, you need to understand that there are incentives on that side too. Right. Exactly. Right. So this term audience capture, it's an interesting term because the way that it's worded is it's almost like you're capturing an audience. That's what it sounds oh, like. That's true. Actually, but, I should have defined that earlier. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. I think this is a useful, uh, well, not a quibble, but expansion of the term because mm-hmm. I think the way you originally meant it is that you are captured by your audience, right? Yeah. But it is, it does kind of go both ways, right? So the way that it starts is that Brett does something that his audience hadn't really been asking for, right? Mm-hmm. He, he talks about ivermectin, mm-hmm. and that brings a bunch of new people in. So he captures this new audience, mm-hmm. and then once he has this giant audience that's staked in him, and you know he's going to lose them if he does something different. Well, now he's been captured by the audience. He kind of has to do what they want, or else they will leave. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. Yeah, I think that that is an accurate description. Like, I mean, again, with Dave Rubin, I think it's like, oh, you know, Dave Rubin had kind of a centrist art audience. You know, he had an interview with Milo Yiannopoulos. He brought mm-hmm. a bunch of right-wing people to his channel. They started liking the right-wing content. He started doing more right-wing content. It brought more right-wing people. And then, you know, now he, like, he couldn't do, <laughs> like, left-wing content. Otherwise, people would be like, oh, what is this? I think he did a content with some economist or something. And then, like, no one watched it. <laughs> Um, like you look at the view counts it's like oh yeah um and then also in his case i think he did genuinely believe stuff because i think he's influenced by the people around him a lot but um i I think that even if he didn't he would kind of be forced to do that uh and that's why for example i was i'm pretty impressed with what david at rebel wisdom did because if you look at his comments a lot of the comments Mm. think that ivermectin is really great (laughs) and vaccines are really not great and yet it seems like he is making his point position relatively clear. And sure, he also has the pro-ivermectin anti-vaccine people on, uh-huh. but he also provides the counterpoints to them and is not just going along with that one side that seems like his audience in general definitely agrees with. Yeah, so it's impressive because it would be so easy and it would earn him a lot of money if he just went along with that. Exactly. Yeah, I think he would just make more money. <laughs> And this but is also a concern that Eric brought up uh, in uh, in an interview he had where he said that he thinks that there are concerns about audience being captured. And he does something where he occasionally posts something that he knows of an audience just won't like and will unfollow him for. Because he does that to kind of purge the bad people from, or the people who he doesn't want in his audience from his audience, I think. Uh, like <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, that, that's that like, pretty interesting. It is interesting. And, you know, it does kind of circumvent that. And it shows that he's concerned about it and doesn't want to, you know, just have to do what his audience wants him to do. And they become like a bunch of people that he's beholden to for money that he doesn't agree with, um, <laughs> which would be an yeah. unfortunate situation. Uh, but even if you do agree with them, then if you change your mind, it's pressure against changing your mind, right? Yeah. It's pressure against changing your mind. Yeah. Because if, like, if you agree with them, like let's say you have an audience that agrees in a point and you agree with that point, mm-hmm. then if you find something that changes your mind, it's pressure against changing your mind because your audience already supports it. And you know you'll lose money if you don't support oh. it anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is what I mean, so, yeah. Right. So once you have a stake in that position, as in your income is sort of directly related to... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. The people that you attract because of that position. Exactly. But yeah. You're going to have 
I don't know exactly what the experience of that would be like, because just in some circumstances, it's more uh, subconscious and others, it's more conscious. Like you might yeah. think like, for example, you could totally have the rational line of thinking for Brett or someone else in that position Yeah, that is like, well, I am not actually as confident as I was a few weeks ago, but I can use this money to do really good things that are going to bring a lot of education to my audience. So what if I, you know, don't tell them that I'm not as confident? Yeah, what if I just don't bring up the new evidence that I found that convinced me otherwise or something? Yeah. Because I don't want to push them away. (laughs) Right, because their money is going to such good use when I use it. Yeah. And I I wouldn't say he would necessarily do that, but I could imagine that motive for some people. Uh, (laughs) Right. And I I guess there is... I remember there was one other person. It's Hunter Avalone, who was a oh. right-wing YouTuber who shifted to being a more center-left YouTuber. And he lost a lot of his audience. But um, that's another thing where it's a very interesting... It must be an interesting experience to have your opinions changed like that and then like have your audience leave or like feel like your audience is a certain way that you don't even agree with anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but not that we really have an audience to worry about. No, yeah, well, <laughs> the, the metanosis audience. Yeah, metanosis. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, like when I listen to it, I'm your audience. So I, I've obviously captured it so much that now I'm on the podcast. Yep, that's the ultimate capture. Yeah, the ultimate capture. Like becoming to not. It's like a. It's like a Borg like integration, like a assimilation. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you'll just be the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> eventually, you know, every podcast will just be like a thousand people <laughs> speaking at once right, with like a hive mind or something. You know, <laughs> the true audience capture. <laughs> yes, discussing the most interesting topics of the it's time. Like, of course, you will be assimilated into the ivermectin collective. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that'd be, that'd be yeah. a good uh, locals group, the ivermectin collective. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like the ivermectin, or that not the. It's almost like a Steve Kirsch's locals group, which was like COVID vaccine victims or something. Yes, yes. Yeah, I forgot what it was. So I remember vaccine victims. Yeah, vaccine victims. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he's uh he's got some capture there too. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I don't even know. I don't know his mind because he seems. I, I don't know how much he's making reasonable <laughs> conclusions and stuff. I don't know how much, I, I don't know what's going on in his mind as much. Like I can imagine Brett is trying to uh, think things out rationally and look at the evidence and he can just be wrong about it. I am not so sure about Steve Kirsch. <laughs> yeah, I don't so even know what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah. We haven't looked into him as much, so it's yeah. hard to say, but from what we've seen, it's a little bit confusing. It's it's confusing to the point that I don't think I could speculate on his internal mental state. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, uh, there was something I was going to... So, about audience capture. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we've talked about the the problems that come along with it. But on the surface, it is basically what you want, right? From an audience. You want an audience that's interested in what you're saying. I mean, so I guess the issue is when you feel like you can't say what you actually think, for fear of losing the audience, right? Well, what do you mean by what you actually think? So, for example, um, okay, so I guess take the example of Hunter Avalon, because I, I think I heard it say this, where there was a period where he was right-wing, obviously, then at a certain point, he changed his mind and kind of became more on the left, but 
he didn't tell anyone because his audience was right wing. So he just mm-hmm. kept making right wing YouTube videos um, for money until he made the decision to reveal that he had changed his opinion. And it was like a significant decision because his audience put, puts monetary pressure on him to go a certain way. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can be bad because it means that, you know, if he's making uh, videos with a certain point and he doesn't even believe in that, you know, that can be bad. Uh, and in fact, it can also be bad if it makes you believe in things that you d- wouldn't otherwise. If you're like, you know, I'm doing research for my most recent podcast and, you know, there's, I could do research on why ivermectin is great or why ivermectin is problematic, but um, I'm just going to do research on why ivermectin is great because that's what my audience wants to hear, for example. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so those are some clear yeah. cases where it's a negative thing. Yeah. But there are cases where it doesn't seem negative, right? Like, mm-hmm. what if you have a pottery YouTube channel, and some uh, you're really good at pottery and you're making money, and then eventually you're like, okay, I'm I'm bored of pottery. I don't really like pottery. Yeah. Well, you could just tell your audience, I don't like pottery anymore. I'm going <laughs> to stop doing pottery. Yeah. But that doesn't really seem like okay. Yeah, I guess that would be telling them what you really think. But yeah, that's doesn't true. really need to do that. It's like, does it really help anything? Not really. <laughs> Who cares? You could just keep making pottery. It's not a big yeah. deal. <laughs> it just becomes like a, a drudge rather than a um a fun thing. But you, it doesn't actually hurt anyone. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it might not be a, like the optimal decision for you personally, but it doesn't seem like it's a negative thing from like a social media perspective. I mean, okay, so I think there's two things. One is I think it's worse when it's about public intellectuals and philosophical, political, religious discussions, stuff like that. Okay. Uh, because in that case, you're, the point is listening or looking at ideas and advocating and whatever, stuff like that. Um, in which case, not being able to say real opinions is a problem. Uh, the other thing is for, your, for the person's mental health, like if someone feels like they have to keep doing something, but they really don't want to, then that could be. So, okay. So take, for example, CGP Ray. He is someone who a while ago essentially made one type of video. It was the quote unquote explained video about, you know, history or geography often. Uh, but uh-huh. he made the conscious decision saying, I don't want to be in a position where I can only make that type of video to get views. He, so therefore he did weird experimental videos like these, like a vlog in Las Vegas or like more whimsical videos or real life videos where he like shows himself traveling to places, um, not like with his face, but just with his hands and stuff. He did this other variety of videos in order to avoid being stuck in a certain pattern that people expect. He wants to make sure people don't have expectations. And the reason for that isn't because he thinks that, oh, if people just watch geography videos, like that'll be bad for the world. He thinks that it would be bad for his own mental health to be stuck into the idea that he has to make that type of video, right? So there's an argument, one, for public intellectuals due to the public good, and two, for individuals, even if there is in that case, just because it helps their own mental health to be able to make what they want to make rather than uh, what their audience wants them to make that they don't want to. Um, okay. I, I think it's a, it's kind of a minor point, but sure. Yeah. yeah there, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's, there's some drawbacks to doing something that you don't really feel like doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that, that would be my perspective. Like if you're a content creator, you wouldn't want to be stuck in that position. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you would never aim for that for sure. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> Unless I don't you're making a lot of money. Yeah. Like I don't see how it'd be considered a positive. It would only be, I mean, if you're making a lot of money, you would still rather be making a lot of money and doing something you like 
Um, <laughs> if that's an option, sure. If that's an option. You know, you can, like, the idea is to try and mold an audience towards something that you would actually like rather than just what, like, arbitrary people want and then you fit the audience. I guess, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. This is kind of off-topic from the original point. So this is why you're not a successful YouTuber, Alex. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's not because I haven't made any YouTube videos that, you know. Maybe I should, maybe I should. Yeah, you can You can try out this theory. Yeah. But, uh, I'll see. But I think that the, the other point is probably the, the, the most interesting part, which is, yeah, how I would classify this is, like, when your content is trying to discern what is true, so yeah. it's not just a like a truth piece of seeking, art as you might say. or something. Yeah, truth seeking. You're trying to figure out what is the case and if you're not able to say what you really think is true and that's the whole point of what you're talking about, then that's an issue because you're lying, right? That's what yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cuz if it, at least if the ostensible point of your podcast is like I'm going after the truth about the world but then you just don't like that's yeah. the, not good. <laughs> Yeah, it means that, well, first of all, if you don't believe what you're saying, then it's not authentic, so it's going to be sort of inconsistent with what you actually are trying to do, What, what or it could be inconsistent with what your goals are for the the whatever the content is. <laughs> and then most of all, it's just if you're spreading false information, then people are going to make bad decisions, usually. Exactly, yeah. Like if Sam Harris suddenly said that he thought, like, after he did the whole thing, like, oh, he thinks that advocating for people to not take vaccines is bad. If suddenly he's like, oh, my audience doesn't like vaccines. I guess I better tell people not to take vaccines. Like, right. that would be quite a bad thing to do, even from his own perspective, because he would just know that he's telling people a false thing. Yes. Or yeah, believe so if- that, at least, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think we're, we're we are talking about the case where you you are knowingly saying something that's false. Yeah, yeah. Because there is a case where your audience can kind of push you in a certain direction, but you don't you change your opinion too. So you're also still saying things that you believe are true. But then there's a the case where your audience can just like put pressure on you to lie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is a little bit tricky, I guess. In the Brett situation, we sort of your impression and i had the same impression is that Hmm. he is not being captured in the way of being forced to say things that he doesn't think are true right exactly yeah i think that there might be some audience capture in terms of creating some sort of bias in the information he looks at or um or things like that uh that Uh that could result in him being more sure about his position uh but i don't think it's such that he has changed his mind and his audience he just needs to keep lying to them i don't think that's true so it's more of a conditioning rather than a like pressure. Yeah, I'm not sure if conditioning is the right word, but I guess. <laughs> yeah, what whatever the word would be for having a social context where he's focusing on things uh, because his audience wants him to. Yeah. But not necessarily being forced to uh to not believing that lie. they're wrong, but just doing it more than he might have otherwise but not because he but not despite the fact he doesn't believe them or something yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's a good way of saying it okay mm-hmm. so that, that that seems like a good synopsis of the position that he seems to be in yeah i think so and it is something that just needs to be acknowledged like we said earlier you just need to acknowledge the bias on, on both sides if you're acknowledging it on one side as a major issue you just need to acknowledge 
on the alternative media landscape, there's also bias or sources of bias in favor of alternative treatments. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, it's good to be consistent if you're using, <laughs> if you're using a point uh, to support a certain argument, well, that same point should apply anywhere that you uh, yeah. can as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, uh, I think this is a pretty good ending point. Yeah. I think um, there were like a couple other technical criticisms I had of his positions oh, okay. regarding like vaccines and evolution, but I don't even think that they're necessarily like good to discuss right now. Um, especially <laughs> since we're what, four hours, three hours and 40 minutes into the podcast or something. It's like, Oh yeah, I don't necessarily think that, uh, those are, um, necessarily, this is necessarily a good time to talk about that. But I would just say that I think that some of his positions about evolutionary pressure on viruses are interesting but also has flaws that he doesn't address and suffice to leave it at that. And uh, I like there are substantive claims there, but I, I won't go into them. I think. Oh, oh that's a shame. Cause that's, that stuff is definitely interesting. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think, okay. So I guess here's some things to say, which is <laughs> maybe I'll go into it a little bit, okay. which is, um, so he was talking to one specific, uh, biologist, I think who is, uh, named, Geert Bosch, Bosch, I'm not sure if that's his name, Geert van den Bosch. Uh, he's a Belgian uh, virologist, I think. And he basically says that if you vaccinate people, then it will cause, one, the virus to mutate into a form that's resistant to the vaccines, and two, possibly make it even worse for the people who are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, because of... So it's an interesting theory, actually. So there's something, again, this will get more, this might get more into the weeds of like biology, but there's something, there's an interesting thing called imprinting or original antigenic sin, which is like the first time you see a disease, that's the antigen that your body remembers and has the memory of. And uh, he says that, you know, if you have these vaccines and they have this one specific spike protein, then when it mutates away, then your body will recognize it enough to mount the original response, but it won't be effective. Therefore, they'll be affected even more than unvaccinated people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's an interesting idea in theory. Uh, and Brett, I can see why Brett Weinstein is partial to it or other theories like it, because it's very evolutionarily based in its reasoning. It is not a common theory about what will happen with these vaccines. And this is actually what Brett talks a lot about when he talks about non-sterilizing vaccines. And this is something that, I mean, they just got wrong in their podcast. Like, they say that they think, or Heather at least said um, that she, there seems to be no evidence that uh, that the vaccines seem to reduce transmission. Uh, Brett did correct her and said that it probably does. But in fact, there's lots of evidence that I don't know how they haven't seen it. There's lots of evidence that it does <laughs> reduce transmission. Uh, I guess this is another thing where I don't know how they haven't seen all this evidence that goes against their position. But um, Yeah, that just seems obvious right because well, it reduces so, symptoms so the thing is that isn't okay so there are vaccines though that don't really reduce transmission very much so it does seem like oh. the covid vaccines do reduce transmission significantly uh and though i don't think fred and heather believe that or at least they haven't seen any evidence that convinces them of that or i don't know um Oh, yeah, this but, is, but talking about vaccines in general. Yeah. So, but in vaccines in general, it is possible to have vaccines that don't do it very much. So actually there's this super interesting case. Um, so oh. have you heard of uh, Marek's disease? 
No. Probably not. It's, it's, it's not even a human disease. <laughs> oh, okay. But um, it's actually a chicken disease. So uh, uh -huh. this is a really interesting case. So what it was is uh, a while ago, decades ago, Mark's disease was basically like um, a somewhat minor disease in chickens. I think it had like less than 1% fatality rate. Um, infected nervous system somewhat caused like some issues. It caused agricultural issues, but didn't cause like mass die-offs or anything. So then they created uh, a vaccine for it. The issue is it was a very leaky vaccine. And so it did not prevent the chickens from being infected. What it did prevent is them showing significant symptoms. So these chickens uh, would get, then get infected. But then the problem is they could still spread it. And in fact, it created a new incentive for the virus. Because typically, I'm sure you've heard that viruses don't want to evolve to be so deadly they'll kill their host, right? Have you heard that? Uh, well, to kill them too fast. To kill them too fast. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to be too virulent and like just destroy their hosts and everything like that. Yeah. Um, however, when you have a virus that's in an organism that will pretty much definitely not die from it, uh, but the virus then has pressure to replicate as much and as aggressively as possible. So it created evolutionary pressure and it basically bred Mark's disease, the virus, to be super virulent. Now, essentially, every chicken that gets Marx disease that isn't vaccinated will die from a very negligibly deadly disease to like an extremely, extremely deadly one. Um, uh, why did it become so deadly? I thought you said that it just became more like, transmissible. So because it aims to be more transmissible, but because it isn't showing symptoms in the vaccinated chickens, it creates huge viral loads. And it, it, uh, it replicates so rapidly inside the body and everything, too. It, it makes it so that, like, in the um, vaccinated chickens, it doesn't cause big issues. But in the unvaccinated chickens, it's extremely deadly now from being not very deadly before the vaccination campaign. So now, essentially, oh, every chicken needs to be vaccinated. But interestingly, even in that case, the vaccine is still effective. Like, <laughs> the vaccinated chickens are still fine, actually. And in fact, uh -huh. I think the number of chickens that are affected by Marx disease now is lower than it was historically because of the vaccine. Um, but it is interesting because it essentially bred it to be very deadly. Uh, but the proposition here is that it'll breed it to not only be more um, transmissible and stuff like that, it'll breed it to become resistant to the vaccines in these... Um, because, you know, they're using these spike proteins and they'll say, oh, the virus will mutate those spike proteins. Therefore, the vaccine will no longer be effective. And in fact, people's immune systems won't even recognize it anymore or something. Uh, so, I mean, looking at Mark's disease, it was a case where it mutated a lot, but the vaccine was still effective. And in fact, I was looking at research from some, or I was looking at an interview with someone called uh, Dr. Vinit uh, Minacheri, uh, who was one of the coronavirus researchers before uh, SARS-CoV-2 emerged. So it's like one of the old, quote-unquote old, coronavirus researchers uh, who was already <laughs> looking at like the structure of the spike protein and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. he seems to think that actually the spike protein is a really good vaccine target, especially because the spike protein itself doesn't actually have a lot of um, wiggle room or mutational space to move into because it has a very specific structure it needs to fit in order to perform its function. That, and that this, the changes we've seen in these different strains of coronavirus or in other coronaviruses that mutate aren't huge changes. They're not like wholesale uh, re rearranging of the spike protein. They're small mutations within it. And actually, there's some interesting research that I've seen that says that actually people who are vaccinated might have better immunity in the future because there's another part of the um, 
virus, the hemagglutinin, which is um, which is very not uh, so. So uh, basically, depending on where the immune system might target first, uh, it might mean that they might miss the viruses later on. I, but it also could be that they don't. So that doesn't seem like a good thing to count on. I wouldn't say that it seems like the vaccines will provide better protection in that case. It could also be that if uh, the natural body recognizes both sites, then it makes it um, even more effective in the future and everything. So it's possible. But it certainly doesn't seem as clear cut uh, as they were saying about um, evolution. One, because they kind of assume that it doesn't reduce transmission, which creates this huge breeding ground kind of evolutionary experiment that they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And also that there would be there would need to be a lot of ways for it to mutate such that it can become unrecognizable, uh, which, you know, is still possible. But even then, if it mutates significantly enough in that way, because it's only the spike protein that our body is recognizing, in that case, a different um, vaccine should be able to cover it. That's the issue with the natural immunity too, where if it mutates a lot and you're naturally immune, it would notice the hemagglutinin part, which really doesn't change like at all at all. But if the spike protein changes a lot and then the hemagglutinin doesn't change, your body might miss the new changes in the spike protein. And that's an important part of the immune response and thus be more vulnerable. But with the vaccine, if it changes so much that your body doesn't recognize it, you can also get a booster shot that then has the new one. Uh, because your body wouldn't then notice the other parts of it and be, be tricked into thinking it's one that's already seen when it hasn't. Um, so anyway, so there are arguments against that. Mm. And uh, I think that would probably get more technical going into it a lot. And uh, <laughs> it would probably be, and I think that is an interesting thing to think about and look at the issues. Um, like there are a lot of people who think that it's pretty ridiculous and also people who think that it's apocalyptically worth looking into. Um I think among the mainstream, the consensus is that it's not a serious uh, concern because we can create, you know, booster shots for different strains and stuff like that. Uh, but sure. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, so anyway, so that's something else that he talks about a lot, and I am unconvinced that it's as big of an issue that he's worrying about, at least. Uh, but and in fact, even if it were an issue, you would still probably want to get vaccinated because I have a hard time imagining the value proposition would be worse even in that case. Um, but you know, yeah, because his two, uh, hypotheses are separate, like the effectiveness of the vaccines. Yeah, exactly. So this, so this, um, hypothesis is more critical of a mass inoculation public health campaign. It's not telling an, I feel like it probably isn't telling an individual person like, you shouldn't get vaccinated in order to prevent a variant from emerging that's resistant to vaccines. But it would be telling governments, like, you shouldn't try and inoculate everyone because it will create a new variant that's resistant to the vaccines. Uh And he believes strongly that um, the virus is extremely unlikely to become resistant to ivermectin. Um, Right. I am, like, that seems potentially reasonable because the vaccine is more specific though also that makes it more easy to just create a new version if there's a new strain um but then also uh it seems possible for it to mutate against ivermectin like if everyone's taking ivermectin that also creates immense selective pressure for it to become resistant to this small molecule drug right (laughs) so it's the same problem yeah i mean it's not the same problem i would say it is probably more likely than for the vaccine but he seems very confident it would not occur for the um 
for ivermectin. Hmm. Okay. I, I, when I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I've heard exactly what his justification is on that. So I, I mean, so here's his, so I guess like his justification for why it's more likely. You mean or why it would be less likely to mutate uh, on or why it'd be less likely to mutate in a way that ivermectin wouldn't be effective. Well, so the so the reason there I think is interesting because it's um the reason is because ivermectin has a more broad effect. Like it isn't specific to the specific sequence of the coat protein or the the spike protein. I mean, um, whereas the vaccine relies on one specific sequence of the spike protein that then our body recognizes and goes against ivermectin. We don't know the mechanism, so we have no idea. So we just don't know. But yeah, but we we can he he would hypothesize and i think this would be a reasonable hypothesis that it has a more broad reaching effect on something about the viral replication or the way it gets into cells or something and uh-huh. maybe it's harder to though there have been lots of cases of uh like uh pathogens mutating in such a way to become resistant to small molecule drugs i mean antibiotic resistant bacteria though those are usually very different from viruses but like there, there's plenty of cases of viruses becoming resistant to certain treatments. Mm-hmm. So uh, it certainly isn't impossible, especially if almost everyone is taking ivermectin that creates immense selective pressure. So I wouldn't be as confident as him, but I could see why he thinks that it's less likely. I, I don't think that that's an unreasonable belief that it's less likely to occur. Okay, so there are reasonable justifications. Yeah, I, I just don't think that that is anywhere near a reason to not vaccinate people uh, <laughs> or then get them on ivermectin instead um mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay i think we've got that part for sure <laughs> yeah sorry i kind of just talked to that part since I, I don't know how much you would have to add about that biology focused conversation part but i think it's super interesting like some of that stuff like marriage disease is super cool um to, yeah, that was really a, about. <laughs> yeah that was a good example of that dynamic i yeah. i didn't really have anything to add but it is interesting <laughs> to hear about it certainly yeah, and uh, that's certainly something, like, that, something like, that people. But I'm interested, in. and yeah, I, yeah. I think that he's talked about uh, somewhat. And yeah. I, I have some disagreements with him, and certainly the mainstream has some disagreements with him, and especially because his recommendation there is to not inoculate everyone and instead give them ivermectin. Um, but yeah, yes, yeah, so that is another difference between you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think. My impression from when he talks about these evolutionary arguments is that, and this is with a lot of evolutionary arguments, hmm. um, it's it's harder to give all of the different factors. Mm-hmm. So there is more than one evolutionary pressure, right? Yeah. So he might give one, and then you are talking about another evolutionary pressure, and then, well, how relatively important are they? Hmm. Well, that's a hard question to answer. Because yeah. it's like, look, I mean, you know, it, it, let's say a cat wants to uh, catch birds really effectively. Well, what could it do? Well, it could grow a jet engine out of its back, right? That'd be yeah. a great way to catch birds. But, you know, is it going to? No. <laughs> because there's other small evolutionary pressures against growing jet engines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or quite large evolutionary pressures <laughs> against growing a jet engine out of its back, I think. Uh, and, I mean, it's not that extreme in this case, but it does seem like... There are other things going on that yeah, don't make it quite as simple. And, but to be fair, it, it is an interesting thing to think about, and I think that is right in his wheelhouse, so I can see why he talks about it. Um, I just don't think his conclusion is helpful, but, uh, but it, it's kind of a cool topic. Uh, yeah, I, I have heard him mention this 
concern about uh I, I don't know if he always talks about it in terms of evolution but somehow mm-hmm. that giving vaccinations to everyone will promote the mutation of the virus into a yeah so this is another thing with. actually so this is a thing that they have said that they believe so they haven't said this explicitly but in their response like on their post um on driving stars give me two thing i think they put like a table or something of like strains emerging and then um what like they they kind of implied that it was because those places were heavily vaccinating things vaccinating people mm-hmm. and then that led to these new strains emerging which is um yeah so they say like the alpha variant emerged in the uk which was then uh holding oxford astrazeneca vaccine trials at that time the beta variant emerged in south africa and was first detected in december uh, at the tail end of the trial periods of AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines in South Africa, the a gamma variant was detected in Japan and soon after in Brazil, making the origin a little harder to discern, but uh, probably Brazil. Uh, and both Oxford, AstraZeneca, and Pfizer trialed their vaccines in Brazil. The Delta variant was detected in India. India hosted numerous vaccine trials, including one for Oxford, AstraZeneca, and one for COVID Shield, um, which is an or COVID Shield, which is an Indian. Uh, Indigenous vaccine, I think it's based on Oxford AstraZeneca. But um Oh, okay. Anyway. But the COVID point is shield. the implication of this, which is written in their um in their post, right, is definitely that these mutations were caused by people getting vaccines in these places. And I mean at best that's a spurious association, right? Like these the yeah. why are they t- trialing vaccines in these places? It's because these places have the most cases. It's Brazil, it's India, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> these are places that exploding <laughs> cases. Like this is where you expect the variants to emerge, even if no vaccines were tested. Uh, I, I don't understand why they can um, take that and then conclude that it seems like the vaccines caused those necessarily. It's it seems it's yeah, it's a very strange conclusion to draw unless you already believe that the vaccines are driving the creation of these variants, right? Yeah, I mean uh, the the obvious question that you need to ask is. What would the variants look like if there hadn't been trials there? So I I guess that they're just kind of implicitly saying that there wouldn't be these variants if there hadn't been trials. Yeah, I think I think that is the implicit assumption. But, I mean, you need to justify that. Yeah, I don't I don't think that they make that claim specifically. <laughs> I think I think this is kind of more. Um, I feel like it's more of an implication here. Like, I, I wonder if this might fit more the just asking questions type of oh, routine. Okay. <laughs> uh, in terms of the existing ones, I think that they're very clear. They believe that future, um, that that vac- everyone being vaccinated can lead to future variants. They're very clear they believe that will happen. And they oh. kind of think that the past variants have been created by vaccine trials in those locations. Uh, and in fact, actually, mm-hmm. the guy they had on their podcast, um, uh, Geert, um, Geert van den Bosch, he actually mm-hmm. made a specific claim on his website that I saw where he predicted that due to all the vaccines, that there would be strains that would be completely resistant to the current vaccines by summer. By now? By the beginning of summer, I think. You mean like by the beginning of so so this was a this was a prediction made a while ago, of course. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of confusing since it seems to have obviously not happened and actually i noticed it on his website like last week so i I guess he just didn't update it but um (laughs) 
Well, that's good. He's consistent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he left it up. Like, I guess good on him for not um, like hiding it. But he also didn't say it was wrong. He just left it in his FAQ, and I think he just didn't update the questions. But um, yeah, it, it seems to me that at the very least, the predict- his predictions have been too pessimistic uh, given where we are right now. And I'm not sure it seems like the best idea to follow his specific predictions in terms of expecting expectations for the future, but yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I, I don't remember if I listened to that episode with Brett and him. Was it? Uh, when did you I, say actually, it was? I don't, I don't think I've, let me see. Um, it was, let me see. Um, sorry. It's hard to like look through their podcast. Cause they all have like the same beginning of the title. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. It's, the one in between 76 and 77. It's called Dark Horse Podcast with Geert van den Bosch and Brett Weinstein. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember it. I, I don't think I listened to that one. I also didn't read... It's from um, April 23rd. 2021? Yes, yes. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But uh, I also did not read, uh, I guess, you was it Heather that wrote it, or was it both Brett and Heather, the response uh, to? I think it was, let me check, I think it was Heather, but yeah, so, or, oh, wait, sorry. So the author line says Heather Hyatt, which is why I thought that she wrote it, but it says this article is co-authored by Heather Hyatt and Brett Weinstein, and it's very long and sometimes technical and not as much fun as a lot of what will be showing up in Natural Selections in the future. Natural Selections being the name of their um Substack publication, I guess. Oh, okay. But, oh, I didn't know they had a Substack. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's what it seems to be. I think they have only a couple posts, and this is one of them. I can I send you a link later. Maybe you can put a link in the show notes. Sure, yeah. We'll have lots of things in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have three um, posts right now. One uh-huh. called Fact Checkers Aren't Scientists. One called On Driving Stars Could Be Too Extinct, which is their response to criticism. And one called Hospitals Should Let the Outside In. Which is totally new. That one is on August 3rd, about what fresh air and sunlight can do for your health. Oh, okay. Yeah. Totally. Oh, awesome. no, and then I think they have an... Or wait, is this another one? Oh, polyandry on the far side of the world. Um, anyway, it, it doesn't really matter to uh, specifically what uh-huh. that publication is on but anyway so that that was that where they wrote about it and that's where they uh, also wrote about um kind of thinking that the variants were created by people getting vaccinated right okay yeah i remember them mentioning something about uh writing a response to the quilla article because they weren't gonna respond to everything on yeah. podcasts and I, I thought that was a good idea but i i, I, do too. I never I think, found it uh, <laughs> yeah i was trying but to look it, it was kind of hard to find uh but it, this is where they wrote it and i do think that there's some interesting responses in it some things obviously i don't think they fully address all the criticism that's also where they write the thing dismissing the criticism of um the meta-analysis because oh, it uses right. the wrong tool um and stuff like that but they do link the paper that uh criticized it so then I went and looked at that paper and found the specific criticisms. And then I was like, wait, no, these are real criticisms. Why didn't they address them? Uh, so to their credit, they were still linking them and everything. So That's yeah. good. That's or at least I think good. they did. But yeah. Somehow you found it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was like, if it's not, then uh, my bad. But at least I, I think they did. 
<laughs> we'll link it in our show notes too. Yeah, uh, we'll link everything in our show notes. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, but anyway, so that's so that's there, there's that article, and I think it's pretty worth reading, and also looking at responses to it from you know other people. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to discuss about this situation? Uh, no, I think we, we covered it pretty well. Um, I think there's probably more that we could talk about relating to audience capture and the dynamic of online communities that we didn't get to, but that's sort of a larger topic. So I think that we did a good job focusing on specifically this situation with, uh, ivermectin and the COVID vaccine, uh, like versus the establishment. (laughs) i think oh actually there's one thing i kind of want to end on which uh it's not like a whole topic it's like a quote um from heather hying in uh dark horse number 91 and she was obviously saying it with regards to certain people but i think it applies to others and she said when the conclusion is handed to you and you're told that no other possible that there is no no possible other thing that you can conclude you should immediately wonder what you're not being told so what aren't you telling me? Uh, yeah, I don't know. But um, <laughs> but I mean, she's obviously saying that in response to, you know, the vaccines. It's like, oh, you know, obviously they're safe and you're told that there's no other way. Uh-huh. But they're doing the same thing with like ivermectin and stuff like that. They're saying this data is so clear. It's the most clear data I've ever seen. I've never seen data this clear that didn't get clinical <laughs> approval. Um like it's so effective. It's it's amazing that we have something this this awesome at counteracting it. Um, and but they don't go into all the details of all the papers and the criticism. And you know when the conclusion is handed to you and you're told that there is no possible other thing that you could conclude, you should immediately wonder what you're not being told, which is usually the uh, counteracting the counter evidence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why it's good to have uh, people available to listen to that are on both sides. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, the people that believe one thing are not going to be good defend, defend not going to give a good defense of the opposing side. Yeah, yeah. Typically, I think that's true, and I, I, we showed that in this podcast for sure when we had both sides equally represented. I think. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> See, that's what our plan was. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and but but I would say that. I hope we gave a somewhat nuanced take on giving people credit on some things that are correct and not on other things that don't seem. Yeah. Don't seem correct. Yeah. I think we did the best we could. And uh, I don't really see that as the purpose. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm really trying to convince anyone here of anything in particular. I mean, it's I more just that people would be listening to convince. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to listen to this, to the end of this four hour podcast. Anyway, you'd be surprised. <laughs> okay. No, you wouldn't be. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, if I'd be surprised, you know, I'm kind of curious, but uh, I, I guess we'll see. Yes, we will. Maybe but, you uh, will listen to the end of it. Maybe uh, not. I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> That'd be funny. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It is four hours. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to say is uh, I thought the the nice purpose of this was sort of the log that this happened and it's an interesting situation and it uh, sort of encompasses a lot of interesting dynamics of online communities and especially with something big like this, like the the code vaccines, it's a worldwide issue. It's a very impactful consequence too. Like should you get vaccinated or should you be taking a 
uh, different prophylactic. You know, these are these are big, impactful questions in you know a media landscape that I think we both somewhat followed, which is you know the alternative media as opposed to some of the mainstream news, um, and it kind of has a lot of people drawn into it, and it, it's interesting to follow. Also, I love it since it's biology. So, you know, <laughs> yes, I'm interested in both the medical and social aspects of it. You've got some relevant background. Yeah. And I think also it's that uh, Brett and Heather, like, they, they don't seem obviously crazy, right? Yeah, they're not like <laughs> grifters or something. I don't think they're, like, you know, lying or just, like, off their rocker like or anything like that. Yeah, like, uh, we, we've known of them before the situation, mm-hmm. and we've... I think we both had a relatively, you know, good opinion of them. They, they yeah. seemed interesting, yeah. had interesting opinions. Not Maybe like they're, they're the cr- best people to follow for all news or something, but, you know, right. like, not, like pretty decent opinions and everything. Yeah. Yeah. At least I did. And I'm assuming you did too, then, if you're saying that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe they're not right about everything. They have some clear biases, but they're not conspiracy theorists or no. crazy yeah. people or trying to scam people out of their money it's pretty clear to us i think that that's not true so this is a case where it's much more interesting because it's not about trying to figure out like who's the baddie here right it's more like how did this happen and why is it happening in this way Mm -hmm. yeah so hopefully Mm -hmm. we did that to some extent yeah and then in a couple years we can listen back to it and remember all this happening yeah then we can either be like wow you know, I remember, like, back when ivermectin was a thing, like hydroxychloroquine, and then it faded off the face of the earth. Or we'll be like, oh, God, I can't believe we were so wrong that ivermectin was so amazing and we didn't even take it. <laughs> um, and then we, and that, but I guess we won't even say that because we'll be dead from the vaccines we took. But um, No, we'll be living the in the ivermectin paradise. Yeah. Where everything is powered by ivermectin. <laughs> yeah. You know, we'll, we'll be in, a, like, we'll, we'll be, our physical bodies will have died because everyone knows there's a, uh, <laughs> two-year timer after you take the vaccine until instant death. Um, but at least <laughs> using ivermectin will have transferred our minds into paradise. Um, yes. Yeah, but um, no. You can you can drink the ivermectin instead of oh, water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ivermectin is taken orally, so it's less crazy. <laughs> um, I don't know if you'd take it aqueous, but, you know. It's pretty big dose, yeah, but you got to stay hydrated. <laughs> yeah i take yeah. my one gallon of ivermectin every morning <laughs> yes gallon yeah what i'm certainly interested about for the near-term future is so i think the most likely scenario uh in terms of the evidence is that there it just kind of continues the trajectory that there's not very many good studies for ivermectin mm. uh there's like one or two that continue to be used but there's more and more that show that it's not as effective as originally thought yeah i think uh, that's because kind of they're doing with hydroxychloroquine exactly right and, and they're happening right now like they're doing the yeah. studies right yeah they are and doing pre- studies like as much as some people say they aren't doing any studies because there's no incentive studies are being done on ivermectin right now yeah regardless of the incentives apparently yeah <laughs> apparently but but what i'm curious about is like potentially how brett and heather could react to that will they have any change of their opinion when new studies come out that disconfirm it i'd be curious to see if they have a conversation with people who are against them because as far as i've seen they've only had conversations with people who agree with them so far in the past couple months at least i'd be curious to see if they do anything like that i'd be curious to see if anything changes their minds um 
And I'd be curious to see where they are. I mean, if it does seem like it ends up being not that effective or marginally effective, which I think either one is equally likely that it's, a, that it's like a little bit effective, how they will deal with that and their reputation will handle that. Um, or if he'll or they'll regret like telling people not to get vaccines and to take ivermectin instead. I don't know. Yeah. So that will be interesting to see. I think uh, I was talking to Yuta about this, uh, just as like an ending note here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to try and psychoanalyze them, but uh, one like yeah, we definitely just... aren't trying to think anything about what they're thinking in this podcast. That'd be crazy. <laughs> no, anyway, sorry. I, but... I, I wouldn't want to like read too deep into it. Like we're trying to look into their motives, but not super right, super right. deep or anything. But they're in a sort of interesting or. They're in a sort of uh, unique position here where they are totally isolated in terms of where they live, and they're sitting in their house all day, like hours and hours a day, speaking to a microphone with no mm -hmm. audience like live, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part. Or maybe I guess they have like live streams, but people are just text uh, chatting. It's still not them. with people like live as in the same way like oh you know you see people or something yeah. yeah like person to person interaction so you know maybe it's it could be having an effect on them right it's just like being maybe. totally isolated <laughs> and they feel like it's very important right they're like connected to this whole universe but uh it, it's uh very impersonal on, on another level mm, yeah i don't know if i'd read that into the motive um since i think i kind of think you could apply the same thing to lots of other people that disagree with them. Like, you know, you could probably apply the same thing like Sam Harris or something, right? <laughs> well, not really. because I don't actually know. <laughs> because they, I mean, so they were part of a community, right? They they taught at a college. Yeah. And they were basically totally ousted from that, like completely removed from that community. True. And they had to be banished over to uh, Portland of all places. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they certainly are not... Uh, popular in portland <laughs> i can imagine given the political atmosphere in portland yes and i think they live out in the country like they don't live oh in the so city. they're like really I, I didn't know their living situation so much so they're like really isolated yeah i don't think they're like you know in the middle of nowhere but they're not I mean, they're not the hermits center. in the middle of the forest then <laughs> right i think they like to be in the uh nature area though mm. <laughs> as you can imagine yeah so they are fairly isolated hmm yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if, how I could draw a line from that to their positions and stuff, though. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense to me that it would make them more extreme. Like, this is the only thing they do every day. Like, oh, lots, lots and lots of time hmm. spent on it. And it's like a very consuming task, right? That's true, actually. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is kind of like the isolation. It's not like the other... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see how they could make any position more extreme or something. Um, yeah, because then they don't have, like, the tempering influence of just doing other stuff. Um, right, or even just, like, interacting with people casually and running into them and having to, you know, <laughs> explain yeah. yourself to common yeah. intuitions. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I guess being isolated could uh, lead to something like that. Yeah, I, I don't, again, I don't know if I'd read too much into it, but that, that's an interesting hypothesis, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't want to take too much from it, but yeah. it, it's uh, it seems plausible that it could have some effect on them. And mm -hmm. uh, I could see, you know, 
if I was in a position like that, I would certainly feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming more extreme because this is the only thing I care about and the only thing I do every day. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I wonder that. I can imagine like having an extreme belief and not noticing because I don't talk to anyone who disagrees with me in real life. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. I, You're right. I think I know someone in my personal life who becomes quite isolated, who has become quite isolated and is somewhat... Uh, has beliefs that are strange in some cases, but uh, I won't go into that. I think so. I wonder <laughs> if that's related. I might tell you about it right after the podcast or something. Okay. Yeah, I I don't think I could think of any examples like that off the top of my head, but it just seems plausible that being in that situation could make you uh, be more extreme. Maybe. Yeah. I, I guess we probably shouldn't dwell on it too much since this is, this doesn't have a lot of evidence and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an idea. Just, just asking questions. Just asking questions. Like, are, are, <laughs> you're just asking questions. Have they become crazy hermits? Have they gone insane from isolation? I'm just asking questions. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, they're I, isolated, but it's also their family. So it seems yeah, like yeah. they're kind of all in on it, too. It's not yeah. like there's a dissenting voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't mean to say that you're, like, insulting them too much or anything. Like, this, this isn't, like, some crazy hypothesis or whatever. But, um yeah i don't know if i would uh read into that but yeah. anyway as, as i've said like 10 times in the past five minutes <laughs> <laughs> all right i think that's good then okay sounds good well that was a good conversation cool all right ending the recording <laughs>